Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads A Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 151, Samwell Tarly, Sam 1, In a Storm of Swords, and an Introduction to Sam, featuring our friend from Radio Westeros, Yoke Boy. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. And yes, yes, we are joined today by our good friend, Yoke Boy. Hello, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us and helping us kick this off. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. It's truly a great honor to be on Girls on Canon with you two, who I rate so highly. When you invited me, I'd been writing about Sam for an episode of Radio Westeros. I really connect hard with this character. He's one of my favorites. So I jumped at the opportunity. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you. And like, as you said, right, like you've been digging into Sam's life a little already. So where can people hear about that? Well, we do have this Samwell episode on Radio Estrus that is coming out very shortly. It goes on a Patreon rollout, which will start in the next couple of days. And then after a week of Patreon, it goes to public release. So wherever you find your podcast, you can come and hear our take on Samwell. But of course, that's we do Sam in one episode. So it's not like putting the magnifying glass that we're going to do today. Yeah, we're getting the sneak peek of the Radio Westeros Ultimate Sam episode, the sneak peek today. We're very, very grateful for that and very excited to hear kind of some of your deeper sneak peek look at Sam and some of your feelings on him since he is one of your favorite POVs. I know Eliana, Eliana also very much so connects with this chapter. This is like, I think my favorite chapter in the entire series, like in all of the books, this is like I think one of the best written chapters. It's just it's just so good. So I'm I'm excited that you're joining us for this. And we'll obviously talk about, you know, part of what makes it such a good chapter as we go through it. Yeah, I, I think for me, Samwell is the, the character I identify with the most. I really realized that only recently, you know, after years of sort of reading through huh. the these books, I really connected hard recently. So I'm really primed to talk about Sam today. Isn't it so exciting to have a series so beloved that you can read over and over again without an ending for years at a time? Oh, we're so blessed. We're so I, blessed. <laughs> My face is just like not moving as you say that. I'm like, uh, I don't know how to feel. I'm trying not to remember, just like Sam in this chapter. <laughs> trying to forget. Trying One to step forget. at a time, Eliana. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true, though. Oh, my God. Each Shaking, sobbing, crying. I do feel that way sometimes. Um. Uh, well, we are going to jump into all things Samwell Tarly before we get into the first chapter, right? So we will jump into Sam and just a little background on him in just a moment. But first, of course, housekeeping up top. Our Patreon episode coming out this month for patrons in the Stranger tier and above, the $5 and above tier, is going to be a trip back to the free cities. We're going to be talking about Norvos. And as excited as I am for January, I didn't think much could top a trip to Norvos. I'm also really excited for February's episode, bonus episode for patrons that we're going to announce early because it requires a little homework, right? A, a little reading ahead of time. We're going to be covering the other book by Madeline Miller. We read Song of Achilles last month with patrons, and we're going to be covering Cersei, not that one, 
So sorry. So sorry to those of you. God, we got to quit doing this, Eliana. The Cersei POV, but you, not that Cersei. <sighs> the Cersei POV, but not that Cersei. The episode title's already done. That's great. <laughs> that's going to be February. Yes. We're going to be reading that, and it's amazing. Come check out Helios's daughter, my favorite of his daughters, truly. Yeah, I'm excited to do that. I really liked the song of achilles sorry i was like a song of it I, again I, I keep getting confused with my articles um between the song going of of a song and of achilles and fire the song of achilles but yeah so excited to do circe in february and i mean just to get to experience this book even you know really talking about how good it is and i it sounds like it's one of those wonderful moments where again the second book tends to be better than the first a magical moment indeed and if you're a patron, there are some other perks you can kind of take part in. Like Discord, we do have our private Discord server for patrons in the Thunder tier and above. And every month over at Discord, we do a brunch slash happy hour where we do games, giveaways, get to know yous. This month's version of that is going to be on the 30th of January. Throw it on your calendar, 1 to 3 p.m. Eliana, standard time, oh my God. I believe, is when we're starting that, right? Yes. Uh, I e guess. I guess so. EST. Phone home. Oh my gosh. Yes, we Coming are out. doing that on January. 30th. No theme yet. We haven't. Uh, we haven't settled on a theme. I thought you came up with one, but yeah, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. We'll figure it out. New year, new us. Yes. Same us. New year, same us. Probably the theme, something like that. Yeah, we'll work it out. Yeah, we're workshopping it. Other things that are happening towards the end of this month. Because last month we did not have a His Dark Materials episode, we are having two this January. We kicked off the year with His Dark Materials and we're going to end January with another His Dark Materials episode. We are covering book three right now, The Amber Spyglass, so go subscribe to keep up with whenever that comes out. I can't believe we're getting to the end. It's it's a good ride, though. It's a, it's a sad ride. It's all getting very <laughs> sad and about death and stuff. So if you want to read a book that's sad about death and stuff... Come read His Dark Materials, the the OT3, the first three books. They're good. They're yeah. good. Well, now we have this episode where it's about sad stuff. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Sam Tarly. Let's get back into it. Talk about Samuel Tarly. A little background on him. Before A Song of Ice and Fire is kind of where we can start with Sam. He's Randall Tarly's firstborn. He was kind of born... Similar time frame around the second half of the Rebellion, right? So, like so many of his book peers, around the same time as Rob, Mira, John, it seems war gives men that last call bell, you know, uh, so you say. But unlike Rob and Mira's childhoods, Sam's father sucked. <laughs> really fucking sucked, like badly, which you'll remember from every other interaction you've seen with the guy in this entire book series. Like John 4 in A Game of Thrones, you might even remember Sam tells John his dad went to a bajillion lengths to make him a man, a uh, master at arms trying to toughen him, Randall having him dress in his mother's clothes, forcing him to sleep in chainmail, making him bathe in oryx blood while Carthine warlocks try to magic him brave. Do you think that could have been Payat Pre? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Probably, see why not. because how many, how many Carthine yeah. warlocks are there? Yeah. That, well, probably won't be as it's many. It's an all-expenses-paid business trip. Yeah. 
Company reimburses, man. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh... <laughs> well, Lady Melissa gives Randall only girls th- for three years after Sam, but finally, at long last, she births a boy, and Randall turns all of his attention to this new chance. He ignores Sam for once, which Sam actually loves, and then only pays attention to Dickon. I mean, if he loved his kid that much, first of all, he wouldn't have named his child Dickon. But anyways, that said... Randall forbids Sam from joining the Citadel because he's just truly, absolutely mean. Like, the most heinous man ever, um, as we also discussed during the Brienne chapters. At age 15, Randall basically tells Sam that he's kicked the fuck out, has to go get a job, but not get a job. He's like, I found a job for you and you have to take it, or renounce all claims to Hart's home. Like, all everything, and you're gonna go move to the Night's Watch, and you're gonna go suffer in the cold now, or you can suffer an accident or attack on the road the next day, and so Sam, quote-unquote, chooses the watch. It's really kind of like a no-chance-no-choice moment, but, like, in the worst way possible, <laughs> and so that's where we find Sam shortly after Jon Snow arrives at the Wall. So let me begin some analysis by telling you all how much I hate <laughs> Randall Tarly. This guy wanted to toughen up Sam, as we heard with this catalogue of abuse. This brand of toxic masculinity is just plain awful. You know how you really toughen up a child? Guess what? It's through showing love, encouragement and support. You know who I think is the real coward? It's Randall Tarly for being a child abuser. It's no wonder that Sam is a walking pile of anxiety after this one. But, of course, brave Randall blames his wife, and he's just too ignorant to understand that Sam is, in fact, a very talented young man with huge potential, as we're going to see in this episode, and further on in your reread too. I don't care that Randall is a storied military general and apparently the finest soldier in Westeros, according to Kevin Lannister. If you can't be kind to your own child, then it's you who's not the real man, in my opinion. He might be my most hated character in this saga, perhaps because there really are people out there just like him. He represents every hard-ass, overbearing, anti-intellectual parent who just won't accept their nerdy child for who they are. Yes. Go off, your boy. I will. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, go the fuck off. I, I love this rant because... It was something we were discussing last chapter. I was like, is George trying to make us think, like, oh, maybe, like, Randall's, like, kind of cool because he's good at military stuff? And we're like, no, that's stupid. Randall fucking sucks. And there's also, it, it makes me think of this week uh, in the episode of Euphoria, the hit HBO television show. Um, maybe also award-winning. And Chloe has been also sharing thoughts on Euphoria recently over on our friend Ara's channel, and she can talk about that. But there's this line of, like... And I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember it exactly and didn't feel like trying to search through the episode of like, you know, if you hate your parents, like that's kind of like acceptable and fine because you don't really get to choose your parents, right? But if you hate your kids, like that's your own fault. And that's like your fault, Randall Tarly, because I mean, you sucked, right? Like, as you said, he's the real coward. Like he was so afraid that like his masculinity was so fragile that he was like, it cannot bear having like a child like this, right? Or like he can't bear Brienne being able to be a warrior. Yeah. He really can't abide women or anything feminine coded. 
Uh, and, and like, there's this really weird thing that he immediately assumes that it's Melissa's fault that Sam right? turned out like this, that she softened him. And it's weird because also her womb is regarded as this gold mine to him to keep like blasting children into over and over until he gets a perfect son. So it's just really weird. He's like, you horribly ruined her. And it's kind of like, there's that line that like when Joanna died, you know, Tywin, that was the last good in him, blah, 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 paraphrasing. And <laughs> it's it's weird because Tywin's still a dick, obviously. Like we see him be a total asshole through this entire series until his death. And even after his death, his ghost is like, haha, bitches. But Randall Tarly has a woman who obviously is a loving wife, devoted wife, does her duty by Westerosi societal standards and terms. And he is like, wow, everything about you is awful. You're the worst woman in the world. You ruined our children. Goodbye. It's interesting. Yeah. Like, he's that much of an asshole. There isn't even the Joanna Lannister defense for Randall Tarly. Like, he's just truly hates. Yeah. Cowardly. Cool. Yeah. 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 It's like you said, Yoke Boy, like, if you want a child to, you know, become confident, you give them encouragement and support, and yet the worldview that Randall has taught Sam that the world is very cruel. Who wouldn't be afraid of a world like that where you can't trust anyone and especially you cannot even find comfort in your family? Like, that is a terrifying world. Yeah, but instead of arming Sam, he sort of places this curse on him by, you know, all this abuse yeah. in effect is like a, a curse on his emotional landscape. Yeah. Yeah. And what's really great about this chapter, right, we kind of see that in A Game of Thrones, and we'll talk about that in a second, but you really get insight into how that has permeated every moment of Sam's life and his interiority once you get his POV. But as you all know, in A Game of Thrones, Sam's intro, he comes to the Night's Watch and he's slow to make friends, except for his buddy, Jon Stowe. John gets the mysterious firebolt broomstick, though, and everything changes. John persuades Maester Aemon to put Sam in the stewards, and Aemon kind of takes him on as a mini apprentice. He ends up taking his vows with John beneath a heart tree, despite being raised in the light of the seven, and then he shows great bravery in getting his friends together to stop John Snow God. from losing them the Gryffindor <laughs> house cup. Uh, God <laughs> damn it. Not. He's Neville Longbottom with a oh with a God. dagger. <sighs> Which takes us into Clash of Kings. I'm quitting. Right. That's a Game of Thrones. You're not quitting. You literally cannot quit. You need this. You need this as much as I do. So Sam in a Clash of Kings. He has a, a kind of a limited plot as well. In Clash, he spends his time studying the many books and papers in the library before the Great Ranging under Eamon's tutelage. And then he goes to Craster's Keep, meeting Craster's daughter-wife, Gilly, and makes an extreme effort to save her child from its fate or impending doom at the hands of the others when no one else gives a fuck. And that is everything we don't know from before Sam's POV is born, because today, Sam Tarley's POV is born, right? In a storm of sorts. A star is born. When he stops John running off uh, near the end of game, that he, he really yeah. stands in front of his horse. And, it, you, you know, you, this is a guy who is just absolutely convinced that he's the biggest craven in the Seven Kingdoms, which he keeps thinking to himself, as we're going to see today. But, mm -hmm. you know, he, he stood in front of a horse to, to stop his friend, you know, running off and putting himself in danger of execution. 
he's giving something back to John. John has helped him so much, but Sam's ready to return the favor. And, you know, that doesn't sound like a craven to me. That's a great point, especially especially considering, like, this chapter is the direct answer to everything his dad stood for against Sam, right? Like, every time that his father's called him a coward or said, like, you could never do this, this could never be yours. Like, everything the light touches, not yours, Sam. That's been the entire existence for him, and this is the answer to all that, right? Like, this chapter showing, like, when a man can be brave... And it's not the first time Sam's been brave. He's totally downplaying himself. That takes courage, especially to stand up to Lord fucking Snow, right? Yeah, it's hard to stand up. God damn it. It is hard to stand up against your friends. I'm pretty bad now about comparisons in a Game of Thrones <laughs> because it, it is like that. Um, and he's he's risking not only his life by standing in front of the horse, but he's risking his friendship. That's That's scary. And he'd put John before himself. You know, he cares that much about his friend. It's great. Yeah. And, you know, you were saying, Chloe, how it's like everything the light touches, it's not yours. Well, good thing it's nighttime in this chapter because the light is touching almost nowhere. (laughs) The belly of the beast. I I am reminded, like, when we chose to do Sam after Brienne, we we chose him for a handful of reasons. And we did pre-choose this order 2017-2018 we have not changed it like this was when we started putting it all together this was our definitive this is the order we're doing the povs in so the guesswork to what's next it, it has a lot of reasons right that it could be the next pov and we chose him after brienne for a lot of the gender analysis right some of these societal standards placed on brienne versus what's been placed on sam a lot of body dysmorphia uh, Randall Tarley, of course, and contrasting Randall and Selwyn as fathers is something really to keep in mind, I think, through some of this. And we focused a lot in the last POV on how it affected Brienne to constantly be pigeonholed, sometimes, oftentimes for Brienne, accompanied by violence from expressing themselves in a way that stunts them emotionally and causes trauma. And Sam is a direct answer to that. I feel like he has suffered a lot of those same kind of relationships in being a child of a lord and rejecting his path that's been laid for him because it literally pains him to take that path. Whereas, I guess, Brienne, you know, there's sort of an assumption that because they're like assigned female at birth, right, that they are going to have to constantly be subjected to violence. Whereas for Sam, it's almost an expectation that, well, manhood means that you will inflict violence. Like, that's the assumption Mm -hmm. uh, within Westeros and what they expect of men. And so, as you said, Sam's a direct answer to that, but also feeling very much like these outcasts, these misfits in society and how they come into their own. And Sam is one of those fun POVs that we don't get his POV right away, just like Brienne. We get his introduction in another point of view through John. Mm-hmm. So another fun, fun little catch. And I'm sure we're going to have a bunch of different things that remind us of some of Brienne's chapter throughout the chapter as we talk about it. So we'll come back to some of that. Yeah, and we finally get the other side of the exchange that Sam and John have after many, many years. I'm excited for that, actually, to flip those chapters and kind of look at what we talked about when we did the John chapter and come back to it. That'll be Mm -hmm. kind of fun. Well, before then, we've got our lightning round. Yes, 
And because it is a storm of swords, which is just a storm of POV characters, we are trimming down our lightning round to keep it to a nice, a nice drizzle. A nice drizzle, if you will. So we did remove, for the time being, Jamie, Tyrion, Sansa, and Catelyn chapters. And we will go from there as we move forward in Sam, starting with the prologue in A Storm of Swords. Chat and some of the other suffering men in the Night's Watch have had it with upper management. They want change in the form of a mutiny. Their mutiny is interrupted, however, by an impending attack by the others. Arya 1. By day, Arya and her brat pack seek the trident. By night, she battles mummers through her wolf. Davos 1. Davos washes up in Blackwater Bay after battle. He is saved from dehydration, hunger, and hardcore sunburn by Salador San. Damn right, don't fucking forget it. He did, apparently. John 1. John is brought before the king beyond the wall, and he must convince him he's turned his cloak. Bran 1. Bran and company hide in the tumble-down tower, where Jojen says they must keep seeking the three-eyed crow north of the wall. Davos 2. After learning his son Devon lives, Davos plans to kill the true murderer behind all of this war, Melisandre of Ashai. Before he can do so, he is taken into custody by Axel Florent. Her power. She's so powerful. Arya 2. The gang arrives at the inn where the Brotherhood Without Banners borrows, or steals, their horses. A little steal from the poor, give to the poor. That kind of action. <laughs> They're just shuffling things around. John, too. John is asked some personal details about the Watch's plans. Later, he gets more personal details from Egret in her bed. Oh la la. Aya 3. Aya is captured and brought before the Brotherhood without banners. Sam 1. Sam moves between memory and reality as he and his remaining brothers of the Night's Watch are pursued by ice zombies. And so we open Sam 1. Sobbing, Sam took another step. This is the last one, the very last. I can't go on. I can't. But his feet moved again. One and then the other. They took a step and then another and he thought, they're not my feet. There's someone else's. Someone else is walking. It can't be me. Yes, I like this. Opening with Sam sobbing, yet taking another step, really sets up this whole chapter, I think. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but George does use these same words six times to begin paragraphs in this chapter. Clearly, the theme is that Sam is suffering tremendously, but he's doing what needs to be done just one step at a time. And as he does so, notice that he feels as if his feet shuffling forward are someone else's. On the one hand, he's cold and he's numb. On the other, he's already beginning to dissociate with the real world as a strategy to overcome this extreme and terrifying set of conditions that he finds himself surrounded by. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, the repetition of like sobbing Sam took another step slash sobbing he took another step throughout the chapter is actually one of the reasons why this is my favorite chapter. I just think that the way it's woven in, like it's so well executed and really goes to show like how the drudgery of doing this and just like how difficult and repetitive and 
horrible it is. And as you said, right, the idea that it's someone else, that dissociation, not just that he can't believe that he's someone also who's able to do this. So clearly someone else must be able to do this, not him. Get in the eve of Shinjiku. Um, oh my god, that is... Someone else is piloting, Eliana. Uh, it's you. I think this is... Just, it's an, Oh my god. This is such an expertly constructed chapter it, it, for so many reasons. A lot of what you're talking about with the repetition is so effective. The very end and then another. As much as this is a horror chapter, right? Like, this is kind of straight up chiller horror. La, chiller mm-hmm. horror. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> ooh. Uh, we zigzag between memory and reality and horror the entire time. And it's so traumatic that he can't bear to tell it all in one go. Right? Like, you have to keep switching realities to understand what has happened to Sam, what has happened to these men, where the men went. It's very great how George plays the cards, keeps you on the edge of the seat, doesn't drop those cards until it's time to. He loves that, as we know. As we know, I'm waiting on some cards from that man right now, if you know what I mean. Wild to cards? the tune You're of some pages. Wild... Oh, I thought oh, you were waiting God. for the next Wild Cards anthology. That's what it sounds like to me, <laughs> Chloe. Now I'm quitting. Holy shit. Uh, but there's also, like, that that effective part of horror is that, like, there's still hope. So Sam is the main character of this horror story that we're reading in this chapter, in this very contained chapter. Under a microscope, he's the main character, and he isn't going to die, right? We see people die around him in this chapter, and so very much so, like, the last hero, very, you know, everything has broken and died And all he has is this flinty little dagger that he's going to hope is best for. And sobbing, he takes another step. And it's hopeful. It's horror. But there's still hope laced in those footsteps. Absolutely. Well, the snow is rising. His sword belt won't stay on. And he has also lost his main sword back on the fist. Big bummer. And I don't want to take credit for this thought. But I've seen folks suggested over the years on the subreddit how... Sam constantly needing to pull his belt up and like it doesn't even fit on the tightest setting. Sam constantly uses his fatness like as a bludgeon against himself and to insult himself and sees it as part of him being craven and because he was told it was bad because Randall Charlie told him it was bad but the description of the sword belt falling off actually implies that I mean he's probably I guess like losing weight because I mean it's been a couple of days and he's doing a lot of moving he's carrying the weight of all of this armor he's got the weight of all of the clothing to keep him warm he's been walking through snow which is very difficult and that's why I don't do it and he hasn't rested in several days and also likely hasn't eaten very much because when are they gonna eat because they are being chased as Chloe pointed out it's a horror story when do people eat during horror stories I don't watch horror movies Anyway, there are many things working against Sam's nutrition right now. And I, I mean, it's Sam is, I think, a really great example of what is meant when we talk about an unreliable narrator, because I think especially Sam is unreliable in regards to how he sees himself. He struggles to see himself clearly. He, he constantly sees himself refracted through the lens of his own father. And what I really love also about Sam's story is I think a lot of it is about learning to see and acknowledge your own self and your own strengths. And it's one of the most difficult parts for Sam's internal story. Like even 
in the chapters that we have so far in A Feast for Crows. He still hasn't even accomplished that yet. And again, it's one of the most powerful parts of his story to learn to love yourself despite everything that the world tells you that you are. Yeah. See, I'm so powerful. He doesn't even know. I know his power. He, yeah. I wish he would know. I hope he learns. Yeah, I do too. That's like my big hope. I don't really care about Rhaegar and Lyanna and all that and Jon Snow. I just hope that Sam Tarly learns to love himself. Yeah. Did you mean Bragger? (laughs) Bragger? So we get a little exposition, a little sword play here from Sam on what he has, what he's packing in his pockets, which is the dragonglass dagger that John gave him, and a steel one for cutting meat. Gren had laughed at the sight of his sword slipping down him many times, and Ed too. Ed said, I knew a man once who wore his sword on a chain around his neck like that. One day he stumbled, and the hilt went up his nose. Oh, Ed. This chapter has some golden, golden Ed lines in it. Really good. Do you think the worse the suffering, the better his jokes? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's got like a dark uh, humor. <laughs> it's like the guy that, that's worked at the company for several decades, you know, and he's seen like the revolving turnover come and go, and he's just always there, you know, in the break room, like, oh, yeah, man, this guy's not going to last. He's going to be gone within the next couple years. The last guy they brought in here, like, that's Ed. He's just cracking the most dark humor in the back. He's seen where all the bodies are buried, dude. Well, it's out here, and they're not buried. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I have bad news about those bodies, but... Uh, Sam is stumbling. Things are not going great for our protagonist. Over rocks beneath snow, roots, and sometimes deep holes that he wishes he could just fall into forever. It feels like falling instead of walking, but never hitting the ground. He wants to stop, but... (laughs) Plot twist. If he stops, he dies. They all knew that. Well, by all, he means the few who are left. They had been 50, some wandered off, some bled to death, and sometimes Sam hears awful shouts and screams, and when he hears that, he runs as fast as he can, as far as he can. They are behind us. They're still behind us. They're taking us one by one. (sighs) Chills. Yes. Even under three pairs of hose. Two layers of small clothes, a double lamb's wool t- tunic, a quilted coat, a loose surcoat, and a triple thick cloak. What he needs is one of those puffer jackets. <laughs> I hear those are great. Uh, <laughs> it is fucking cold out here. He's got heavy fur mitts and a scarf, but yet cold, cold, cold. He can't feel his feet, but he knows that they are hurt and all the days are blending into one another. We have this quote of, if only I was stronger. He wasn't, though, and it was no good wishing. Sam was weak and fat, so very fat he could hardly bear his own weight. The mail was too much for him. It felt as though it was rubbing his shoulders raw, despite the layers of cloth and quilt beneath, between the steel and skin. The only thing he could do was cry, and when he cried, the tears froze on his cheeks. Sobbing, he took another step. Yep, another step. And George is putting real emphasis on just how much Sam is struggling and suffering, which immediately helps put us in his 
shoes. We can really feel the cold. I can when I read it. My wife once wore chainmail at a museum and she assures me that it was extremely heavy and restricting, even more so than you might think. And he's wearing a huge backpack and he's got all these layers of clothing, which Eliana mentioned. So he, he's loaded up like a mule. There's this biting cold and the others are behind him who are, are of course, responsible for the extremity of the cold because we know that they bring the supernatural cold with them. George is really making life incredibly difficult for Sam, but it's often in such conditions where we learn the most about our characters. And by overcoming obstacles, well, it's a great way to initiate some character growth, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's been really great to actually revisit and isolate these chapters and Sam's psyche because everything we know about Sam, like before his POV chapters, does not come from him. So actually getting to see those layers of how his childhood affected him as well as like how it's etching out his thoughts throughout the rest of his chapters. Yeah, it it's really sad. This chapter is incredible because Sam gets the chance finally to defeat some of the odds that he has always perceived to be against him. And he doesn't recognize it yet, right? And and as you said, yo boy, overcoming obstacles is a great way to initiate character growth and my god Sam is going to face a lot of obstacles throughout his POVs. He's got a lot of growth to do then. That's true. That is so true. Oh, to be 15. <laughs> no, not really. I do not, want, I do not want to be 15 again. That's a lie. Um, couldn't pay me to go back. Sounds you good on that. paper, right? Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, all this is bad enough to live it through another lens. Oh. Uh, makes me think of that Sky High villain. She's like, I went through puberty twice for this. <laughs> for this? <laughs> so Sam thinks of wanting only fire and someone, Gren, Ed, who knows, reminds him, well, you know what? You had a torch and you dropped it in the snow. <laughs> um, I also want to call out like when they talk about the torches, right? It's called the old bear's ring of fire. And I just I just wanted to acknowledge that detail because I love it. I, it just feels so heroic. That ring in general is so symbolic during this chapter as you get to like the yeah. flashback. I like Jay It's like the Mormon. beacon of light. Yeah. Yeah. I like, you know, 80%, 80 to 90% of Mormons. <laughs> There's like one, one, one that I could do without. <laughs> yeah. Sam feels fat and weak and useless, but yet he keeps going. Mother have mercy. He repeats to himself, thinking of his own mother in Horn Hill and his little brother Dickon. So this idea of mother have mercy gets repeated throughout the chapter as well, not just here. And I find that really interesting because Sam's returning to his childhood faith in this moment of hardship, despite, as we all know, it was like a big moment where he like converted and pledged to the old gods. But I don't think the old gods really care about who you worship that much, but... This moment of hopelessness and just, like, hoping to survive and also wondering, like, why you, of all the people who were there, right, survived this horrible thing and then praying to the mother for mercy, it it just really reminds me of Davos, who survived the Battle of the Blackwater and who we learn at around, like, a similar time in this book. And by that, I mean a few chapters ago, we had a lightning round, right? But at a similar time, (laughs) is alive. And... Though his traumatic moment of big loss was, you know, one from fire, Sam's is of ice, but they both really turned to the same line. 
Yes. It struck me this read through how similar, just after we did Davos not too long ago, there before Cat, these chapters are so tonally similar. There's kind of this thought that, like, Davos has the island burning death pit of awfulness after Blackfire, but the fire, and Sam just has the snowy version, right? It also makes me think about how Davos is heading north. He's going to have maybe his own Sam one in A Storm of Swords happen to him soon, mm. as soon as The Winds of Winter comes out next week. <laughs> next week, look under your chair. Uh, there's here. this line. <laughs> it's here. Look under your chair. There's something interesting about the Stonewall Ring, right? Mm. And, and how Davos scrambles up the rock as the tide is rushing in on him to keep from being swept into the bay. And Sam has to kind of keep an eye on the Stonewall throughout this entire exchange back in the struggle. Uh, the Stonewall was the place where everyone's gathering. It's where the enemy was coming over. So even just the language of the tide rushing in, but instead of the tide, it's whites. The sea washing them away is the whites washing them away. And and even that, like, Davos wants to die in Davos 1. If you recall, he very much so is like, please, my God, just murder me. The passage is so funny because it reminds me not, it's not dissimilar to Sam at all. Thirst, hunger, exposure. They were his companions with him every hour of every day. And in time, he had come to think of them as his friends. Soon enough, one or the other of those friends would take pity on him and free him from this endless misery. Or perhaps he'd simply walk into the water one day and strike out for the shore that he knew lay somewhere to the north beyond his sight. It was too far to swim, as weak as he was, but that did not matter. Davos had always been a sailor. He meant to die at sea. The gods beneath the waters have been waiting for me, he told himself. It's past time I went to them. Sam is calling for his own snowy death, hoping he gets buried beneath the downfall, the flurry of snow, and just stays there and dies. Not unlike, not unlike each other. Yeah, finding yeah. finding hope in hopelessness. It can be done, guys. Yeah, and then yes. someone comes along and is like, no, we're not letting you die, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> the mother was merciful, all the septons agreed. But the seven had no power beyond the wall. This was where the old gods ruled, the nameless gods of the trees and the wolves and the snows. He whispers, mercy me, remembering that Maslin had whispered mercy as the white had killed him. Just whispering mercy and then his, his mind shoots to this other moment of mercy. It's a great example of how Sam's mind naturally conjures up sort of intrusive thoughts and negative associations almost automatically. To me, this is typical of how a traumatized mind can operate. And we know that even before the events at the Fist, that Sam was extremely anxious due to his prior abuse at Randall's hands. I mentioned that Sam has a habit of dissociating when under strain. Well, the problem is that there are so few safe places in his head. His memories are almost always associated with pain. And now he has this added layer of PTSD that witnessing this carnival of horrors that the fist has brought in. Soon he's caught between the terror of the real world and the terror of his memories, and he attempts to block out unwanted thoughts. It says, the dead have no mercy left in them, and the others, no, I mustn't think of that. Don't think, don't remember, just walk, just walk, just walk. 
I love that observation of Sam and these intrusive thoughts. I, I never really thought about it that way, but that is very much how it's written, right? Like the, the as you said, traumatized mind conjuring those moments. And he's got trauma upon trauma now. Yeah, it's it's just lay, layered up. <laughs> yeah, like the snow, just layered. <laughs> Lots of uh At trauma. least Sam hasn't like made up a memory of kissing another yet, you know? The unkiss. That could be sexy. The other unkiss. Ooh, I my erotic friend fiction. A, yeah, the other. Yeah, I mean, like, apparently that was enough for one of those kings, the Night's King. Not the Night King. The There's boyfriends. There. Him and his yes. four boyfriends. The riders of the oh apocalypse. <sighs> Him and all his Night's King boyfriends. That's kind of it. But anyway. So I, I do also think that this line that you've called up here at the end is interesting, right? The the one of the dead have no mercy left in them because, I mean, it's fresh in our minds, right? We're coming off this chapter, we're coming to this chapter like on the heels of finishing Brienne 8, and of course she encounters Mother Merciless, who is also dead, and again, has no mercy. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. definite commentary on... You know, George is dealing with mercy, and I take it his message is to find mercy in your heart. You know, if someone wrongs you, then being merciless mm-hmm. is a poor reflection of your character. Mm-hmm. So right. It's just like the season one finale of The Righteous Gemstones. That That's an interesting thought of, like, people, the living, finding mercy in their hearts. I wonder how... We talk a lot about how mercy will manifest in the Stark Kids storylines. I wonder if it'll be something that happens with like sam and his dad but anyway for now sam has fallen to his knees thinking that this is the end a voice growling back on your feet piggy but he lays there thinking you know it may not be so bad to die that the snow would cover him like a blanket he hadn't wanted to go anyway like but maester aemon was too old so then he had to tend to the ravens ordered by the lord commander and jared told him you know what write out a letter if we are attacked one to castle black one to the shadow tower and stay out of the way saying that sam would be sorry if he didn't we have this passage sam was sorry sorry he hadn't been braver or stronger or good with swords that he hadn't been a better son to his father and and a better brother to dickon and the girls He was sorry to die, too, but better men had died on the fist. Good men and true, not squeaking fat boys like him. At least he would not have the old bear hunting him through hell, though. I got the birds off. I did that right, at least. It's just so heartbreaking to finally get inside Sam's mind in this POV and witness what we could have all guessed at first hand, that he blames himself for his abusive upbringing. He totally thinks that he's to blame, which, yeah, that's very predictable, really. Randall expected Sam to be a certain way, which, of course, is, you know, associated with gender roles. But when he grew to be something different, Randall effectively denied him a sense of self and identity. It's a shame that Sam believes these so-called shortcomings are his fault, as if a child can choose their aptitudes and personality at will. I think we can compare Randall to Tywin, who is obviously disappointed with Tyrion, and perhaps contrast him with Ned Stark, who I thought was thinking about this. He realised Arya didn't fit his expectations of her, but he decided to adjust expectations rather than forcing her to fit into this mould. 
even with the the very little that we know of Selwyn Tarth, Mm -hmm. obviously Selwyn isn't sitting around at fucking bridges like a troll, like Randall is, being like, oh, you want to take a different path for your life? My daughter did that, and look what happened to me. Because that's all Randall's doing, right? Like, he's just sitting around being very negative all the time with obvious issues going on. That's why he hasn't gotten promoted in so long. You know what I mean? Like, this is his newest opportunity. But Tywin? Tywin didn't play those games. He was like, I'll just burn your life down. At least Tywin did stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sam is actually really bright in this chapter, though, right? Because he, when he's writing these letters for the birds, he writes them ahead of time in all different scenarios and outcomes. Uh, a short messages describing the attack and different outcomes. And he gets prepared just in case, because you never know what bird you need to send. Sam is great at using his brain. Randall didn't see it, but it's true. And his anticipation here proves it. Although it seems that Sam is useless, you know, trudging through the snow, hoping to die. Don't fall into the same trap as Randall in thinking that, therefore, Sam is a fatally flawed character. George has made him a fish out of water here, placing him in the worst possible environment for his skill set and abilities. But how, for example, do we think Gren would fare if he was left in a library to research? Mm. I think getting the messages together in advance shows Sam has a very capable mind, that it's always working. And don't forget that on this trip, he's done other useful things for the Night's Watch, such as draw intricate maps beyond the wall. So Jon Snow was right when he told Maester Eamon that it takes all sorts to run the Night's Watch. Absolutely. There's a tool for every task and a task for every tool, you know, as a a horrible man once said. It's Tywin Lannister. What is All with right. you and the like Tywin like praise this? Episode? I don't know what's going on who with him this episode. Who are you? I'm, I don't know. Who are you? I don't know. When you bring Randall into the uh, into the frame, everyone else looks a bit better. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Like <laughs> that's even, how bad he is. Yeah, even he's him just so apparently. Awful. Yeah. That's that's more what I'm saying is like he's making Tywin look D minus. You know, that's still like a D is almost passing, right? I don't know what grades are here anymore. I haven't gone to school in so many years. Uh, <laughs> if you were 15 again. Well, there there you go. See, if I was 15 again, like Samuel oh Tarley in the US of A, God bless him, I would have at least a D here. <laughs> when the horns blew, Sam had been asleep. He opened his eyes to snow and the brothers start grabbing weapons and running to the ring wall. Chat, Eamon's old steward, is nearby, full of fear, asking for help to get the birds out. Sam dug out his own message, attaching them to ravens with shaky hands, and then struggled to catch one, losing a couple of them. But finally, he gets them to stay still so he can get a message out. Sam doesn't realize that Chet was going to kill him. Of course, we know about Chet's plan because he had that single POV prologue. Chet has always believed that it was Sam's fault that he was on the ranging in the first place due to him taking his place as Eamon Stewart, despite Sam actually being on the ranging and going through this suffering too. The leech's son was angry because he perceived that the class system was working against him, with John and Sam being highborn. And 
Chet really believes that he's somehow superior to Sam. He sort of, in his own way, looks down on him. But we're learning that fear is a great equaliser. In the crucial moment, it's Sam who manages to get his shit together and Chet begins to go into a blind panic. I think Sam showed more backbone than Chet, yet he's so steeped in doubts and self-loathing that he never thinks of it in those terms. He never looks outside himself and thinks, well, pat myself on the back. What I did was pretty cool just then. Yeah, and there's something great that, like, in the face of death, Chet, who in the prologue talked his big game, calling Sam a coward... And saying, you know, oh, one touch of the knife, that craven would piss his pants and start blubbering for his life. Chat, in this moment of call to action, he's like, I don't want to die, dude. I don't want to die. And he, like, runs. And he doesn't do the duties. Sam stays to get the birds off, which is, I mean, his work ethic. You have to give Sam that, that, like, the things that he is good at doing and his responsibilities, he does do them and he does them well. And so him actually staying, despite the fact that the dead are crawling over the walls, they are here, they're in the backyards, that's really indicative of his character. Yeah, and it wasn't easy because in the description it says that the birds were sort of pecking and clawing him, drawing blood. They were going really crazy in their cage. And you can imagine how difficult it was to sort of focus his mind on what is ostensibly a simple task, but it really wasn't a simple task in that moment. And it's like meaningful task like this is like do or die like this is like you may never know what happened to those 50 men that went north they may have never come back that's a good amount of the watch's power went out on this ranging and Mm -hmm. a good amount did not come back and i mean they could have been worse off had he not made sure communication was sent and backup was kind of called for yeah absolutely and i mean it's first of all Grabbing birds is hard, okay? And in this scenario, probably much harder. Difficulty level turned up. But also, like, what you're saying, you know, comparing, like, Chet's reaction and Sam's, I think it's kind of funny because Chet, not only is he full of self-loathing, he's got this very intense sense of entitlement, right? We see that in his prologue. He feels entitled to this girl's affections, and when he doesn't get it, he kills her, right? And he feels entitled to better in the Night's Watch. And I don't think he's wrong. He's not wrong that the class system does work against people in the Night's Watch. And I think Corin Halfhand does a great job of explaining that to, to John, right? That what that privilege looks like when it comes to class. But Chet's almost like this dark mirror to Will in the A Game of Thrones prologue, right? Where Will hides in the tree. And doesn't do anything in that, like, do-or-die moment when the others come. And and Chet does a similar thing, right? He flees. And Sam, on the other hand, doesn't really feel like he deserves anything. And I also just, like, love how charitable he is to, like, his perception of Chet. He's like, oh, Chet must have run off because he has to go care for the dogs. Not because he's like, oh, Chet ran off because he's acting craven also. Because, I mean, anyone would be scared in that moment. And, And I just love that Sam extends that grace to Chet and thinking that, you know, Chet's role is also important, right? You're talking about every tool having its use. Ugh. But I mean, it's it's one that Sam never really thinks about in regards to himself and the importance of his own duty. He thinks highly of others, but low of himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big sad. He's judging them on a different rubric, yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the Warhorn had stopped. 
The Clash of Steel has not. After that, Sam packed as quickly as he could. Spare clothes, dry socks, dragon glass arrowheads, the old horn, and a sausage that he'd been saving since the wall. Honestly, he's, he does a great job of packing, and I also appreciate that George gives us the detail specifically that it is a garlic sausage. <laughs> like, I don't know that it was important, mm. but it is to me. It is to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe that helps, you know, with the cold. Is, does that, you know, a bit of garlic in your blood? A little spice, a little yep. warm. And, well, garlic maybe. is, uh, it's an antibiotic. It's a natural antibiotic. When you mm-hmm. chew into garlic, it releases allicin, which is kind of like, that's, you know, you got a toothache, chew a garlic clove, put that puppy right there, get through a few more yeah. days, you know? The old medicine. So, well, and that is something that I notice in this book. Like, they talk about, you know, if you don't have enough meat in the winter, those yeah. teeth are going to get loose. Mm-hmm. Whenever I'm sick, Chloe... Tr- convinces me to eat a raw clove of garlic. I don't know how much it helps, but I've done this on more than one occasion because Chloe's like, you gotta eat a raw clove of garlic, yep. Eliana. I'm like, okay. <laughs> it at least clears up the chest and the nose a little. At least. At least. It burns a lot, though, so. It does. <laughs> you know, be warned if you're gonna try this one at home. Yeah. <laughs> Sam realizes that he doesn't actually know what he's supposed to do next after doing the birds. He can't see anything beyond three yards in either direction, and the horn had been ringing three times. Three long blasts means others. The white walkers of the wood, the cold shadows, the monsters of the tales that made him squeak and tremble as a boy, riding their giant ice spiders, hungry for blood. Awkwardly, he drew his sword and plodded heavily through the snow holding it. So later in this chapter, Sam refuses to sing any songs, like internally or externally, especially the Bear and the Maiden Fair, which was suggested by Gren. And also, this song pops up a lot throughout this book. Uh, it, it, it kind of acts like that sobbing Sam took another step in holding this book together, and it makes sense because now Sam is traumatized by the undead bear. But there's also an aspect of it in which I kind of feel like maybe Sam refuses to sing the songs because we are seeing here something that is recurring throughout A Song of Ice and Fire of like, so the legends, they are fun to hear and to think about, but turns out living through the legends and the songs yourself like really fucking sucks. I mean, obviously, yeah, he's just too tired and scared to sing, but I, I think there's an aspect of like that sort of deconstruction going on as Sam is now living through this legend that is not supposed to happen. The songs aren't as fun to live in. And, you know, there's also something, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but there's something there about the Tarly Sigil being a huntsman and like the bear being kind of a, a very focal villain in this chapter for Sam. I don't know what it is. I'm playing with it. We're workshopping it. But something interesting there with the Huntsman sigil. And I do think that there's Mm -hmm. also something to singing that reminds me of a couple things. Later in Sam's plot, we get the memory of the last time he sang to his mother. And he had been lulling baby Dickon to sleep. And his father heard their voices and comes barging in and says, like, he won't have any of that. He says to his wife, you ruined one child with your soft septon songs. Do you mean to do the same to this babe? And he told Sam to stop singing near Dickon. It kind of is a memory that reminds me of Brienne and Catelyn. Looking back to some of our Brienne episodes and chapters on reread, when Catelyn asked Brienne, did you sing for your father? And will you sing for me? 
Brienne's like, no, fuck no, I will never sing ever again. I do not sing. That is not for me. I'm not going to be performing at your fire fest, Catalan, your fire white fest. So I don't know. There's something in those two characters with their singing, right? And their fire white fest and their singing here that Sam does not want to sing uh, that. And of course, we're opening Sam's plot with the bear and the maiden fair and Brienne's plot in Storm ends with the bear and the maiden fair, this, this book, right? Good, good book caps going on there. It does. Mm-hmm. Well, Sam follows some very large bearded men with eight-foot spears, feeling safer. And when he sees the torches still lit on the ring of stones, he is relieved as hell. He stands behind the others. He's looking for Gren and Ed and thinks, If I have to die, let me die beside my friends, he remembers thinking. Yeah, it's so... So good to see Sam thinking of his friends, even in this hopeless context and situation that he's surrounded in. Given that Randall actively chased him away from his natural family, Sam really needed to fill that void with kind strangers. And I think this is something that happens in the real world, right? So nerdy Mm -hmm. people seem to find family and strangers if they don't have it at home. With John's help, Sam did that at Castle Black and those friendships have really endured. It is both sad and heartwarming to see him crave their company and give some meaning to his potential death. Because he's probably thinking, God, you know, Randall doesn't give a shit about me. Who's going to care about me? So he's thinking, just let me die beside my friends. Afterlife at Hornhill, he's just glad anyone cares about him at all. However much he continues to view himself as a misfit I think it's very plain that he's found some sort of belonging with the Night's Watch. Yeah, it's been so great, especially having this POV open, you get to also see those friendships a little more closely in ways you don't see those characters relate to John, because John is just such a different level of character. And he, he's, you know, he's brooding a little more than, than Sam does. Sam gets some really great little scenes throughout this book. I really love that. I loved them getting to explore their friendship and Sam having these friendships like in a non-toxic way. You know, an environment that strips a lot of those titles away that the Tarleys would care about so much and all of those. It's like when I was a kid, my mom wanted to send me to private school because of the uniforms because she's like, then kids don't fight because they all have the same clothes. And I think about that when I think about the Night's Watch. They still fight. Kids will always fight. I don't know what she thought that would do. Hey, listen, I didn't get that part of her brain, apparently. But I think about that with the Night's Watch, because I'm like, they still fight. But, you know, now you've stripped out the finery of it all. You know, what if we played kings and queens, except took out all the queens and all the kings, and it was just people wearing the same outfit at a cold wall? I, I don't miserable, know how I feel about but... that. Yeah, yeah, it sounds pretty, it sounds miserable, sounds really goth. <laughs> Um, but what if they made friends with one another? That's beautiful. That part's beautiful. And, and like, in regards to that, you know, I love, it reminds us, right, like, in terms of him finding his people elsewhere. I mean, like, in their very first chapter together, in that introduction, John is like, no, we're brothers now. Yeah. And, and, and like, I love that the bonding that they have, right? The friendship is... One of the first moments is he just, like, talks to Sam for a little, and he just lets Sam cry. Sam just cries a lot. He's crying a lot in this chapter, too. 
and Maybe. Sam and John just like sits quietly and lets it happen, and like that's I, that's just so beautiful. Of course, Sam would want to be with those people. Like that's love. Yeah, the, the, that's they really listen to each other from the outset because John talks to Sam about his weird dreams of the crypts, and you know Sam's intently listening. Oh, yeah. So it is a two-way thing, two-way street. Yeah, that's a great point, and something, and that's a good lesson too. Now that I think about it, I know this is a tangent, but sometimes a way to get people to feel comfortable opening up to you right like to to make a space for those kinds of conversations this john demonstrated that by being vulnerable and that gave space for sam to also open yeah up to him. exactly that's it because um john's talk of the winter frail crypts comes before sam sort of confesses all the mm-hmm. horrors of his past it's directly before and it's like john made him feel you know comfortable by confessing some of his own sort of personal demons and then you know sam just comes out with it all i I think that's a really beautiful scene between those two early on yeah well and we see it in this series uh, as a metaphor as well for like forging a knife or a sword or you know etc but that's how the the way to forge metal and steel right like you have to beat it you have to put it down to its most vulnerable and that's the way the strongest bonds are forged and I think we have them, they're vulnerable, right? They're teenagers, they're so fucking vulnerable. They have not a very steady parental thing going on for either of them, and mm. any of them. And they all find a way to bond in the middle of a fucking ice blizzard that they have to live in forever and ever and ever. Until they die. Yeah. And but then they come be together, back. Hopefully, when they die. Yeah. Yeah, except, yeah, never mind. That was big sad. <laughs> eventually, uh, he'll come back in the winter. Eventually. Oh, my God. But, well, and these are beautiful relationships, but we actually get some very fun little minor characters in this chapter, right, that come back. Like, we have Thor and Smallwood later, Rip, and we have Blaine, who's a ranger from the Shadow Tower right now, who's directing brothers to notch, draw, and hold their arrows. Sam can't see what they're aiming at and he does not want to hundreds are beyond coming out of the wood crawling to them and it had been colder that night than he was now in the present day buried in the ground the snow growing on him sam sees someone pass him in real time on a horse and he finds himself jealous thinking if we had a horse i'd make it but they're running low on horses and the horses are reserved for the wounded and their supplies which Sam thinks he's not wounded, just fat and weak. Soon after that, there's like this line and moment when Sam is just like lying down in the snow and he thinks that he's the greatest craven in Seven Kingdoms. And I just want to say that that is just false. That is just untrue because they are not in the Seven Kingdoms yeah. right now. <laughs> That's all I have. <laughs> I like it. But but even if they we get this line even if they had been in the Seven Kingdoms, you're still wrong, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I can think of at least ten characters, motherfuckers. <laughs> we have this passage. Sam was his heir, but he had never been worthy, so his father sent him away to the wall. His little brother Dickon would inherit the Tarly lands and castle and the great sword Heartsbane that the Lords of Hornhill had borne so proudly for centuries. He wondered whether Dickon would shed a tear for his brother who died in the snow, somewhere off beyond the edge of the world, 
Why should he? A coward's not worth weeping over. Yeah, that word again. Sam is fixated with the notion that he's a coward. We see it time and time again in this chapter and elsewhere. And yeah, it's obvious who planted those seeds. What I think Sam doesn't do is sort of balance things out by giving himself any drop of credit for dealing with the extreme fear he feels. You know, he goes through this, but he never pats himself on the back and says, you know, you got through it. We know from Ned that the the only time a man can be brave is when he's afraid. But Sam defines himself by the f- amount of fear that he feels rather than his success in coming through that fear. And in spite of his precarious position, he is succeeding because the immediate danger is around him and his character goal is simply to survive at this point. He's just got to get through it somehow. And we're learning through all these flashbacks woven into the narrative that surviving was no mean feat after that attack by the others. We are in a horror story. The monsters are close behind. They're chasing. And yet... Here Sam is thinking himself the greatest craven ever, you know, because he's frightened and afraid. There's a self-help book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, and I always thought that was a great title, and it really reminds me of Sam in this moment in this chapter. I love that. I like that title. Absolutely. Yeah, he's taught that fear is something to be ashamed of feeling, as opposed to, as as you said, right, like, embrace the way that Ned acknowledges like people feel things and that's important because it helps you understand like i don't know i mean like he's in danger right if you weren't feeling fear i'd be like you're broken (laughs) yeah like he's not a daredevil daredevils do that shit and he's not so he you know what sam you're actually you're extraordinary but you're closer to normal than you think you know he probably doesn't acknowledge that everybody else is feeling the same kind of shit that he is he's just absolutely fixated on the idea that you know he is feeling this great fear and probably promotes everyone else around him in his mind that they're doing much better than he is but of course we don't have their povs Mm. the one pov we have is chet and he was terrified so what's the big deal sam hearkening to what you were saying with their their bond right john and sam's bond when they craft that bond in such a vulnerable time, it's so interesting that both of their plots directly involve the others so much. When you have so much emotion mm-hmm. that being vulnerable affords you with that other person, human connection in the light of these ice zombies, right? With zero human connection left. It's really such a, a stark contrast, hmm. oh, one could say. Ooh. <laughs> Fired. Uh, a stark contrast. and. It feels significant, like intentional, even thematic. It does. And in regards to like, again, those those interactions with John in, in that first chapter, I mean, part of it is like because people in Westeros and especially the men, right, they're conditioned to not talk about their feelings. Everyone's fucking scared in this moment, clearly. I mean, you can see like Blaine's kind of scared, too, because everyone's like, we did it. We hit everyone. We hit all the whites. And then they're like, oh, my God. They're not stopping. There's, like, no break. And, you know, like, I remember in that first chapter, Gren and Pip are just so astounded about Sam. They're like, I can't believe he is willingly calling himself a coward. And I'm like, 
a lot of people are afraid of things. They feel cowardice, and it's just that John and Sam are willing to talk about it. And that's kind of brave in and of itself. Yeah. And then Sam remembers the night on the fist when John Mormont commanded they fire arrows and give them flame. He had told Sam to get out of the battle, that his place was with the ravens. When Sam said he'd sent them, the commander had said, good, telling him he's in the way and to go man the ravens. You know, that's his duty. Go and do it, Sam. So Sam went back to his birds, writing his messages with frozen ink and frozen fingers. He writes, attacked in snow and cold, we've thrown them back with arrows, still safe. And the next letter he writes is less certain. Still fighting, heavy snow, result uncertain. He hears Diwin singing, brothers cheering, cursing. He writes his next, white on the fist, but we drove them off with fire. And then whites all around us, spears and sword don't stop them, only fire. Oh, I love this because he's like, dis- he's writing out exactly what he's going to like combat at the end. Like he's doing it in practical theory here on paper, you know, first. And he's going to go practical the hell out of it in real life soon. And he has no clue. Go, Sam. Uh, I-, I love how the whites are displayed in this chapter because... They're almost, like, not really dangerous. Like, they are dangerous, but, like, if you have three of them, you can light them on fire, keep them back, you're good. Uh, It almost makes sense to that whole good old season seven plot where they took the white to the Capitol. Anyone remember that one? Hmm. (laughs) That show was fucking off the rails. Like, Sam, I am trying to forget. (laughs) Ah, trying to forget. But you could see where, like, with a couple, with the right flame on hand you could probably keep them back but they're they're very soulless very clumsy and when there's a lot of them swarming over the wall it's not as easy and you cannot keep them back and they're kind of just clumsily portrayed right they're they're these little icy skeleton boyos but they really compared later when we get the beauty and the elegance of the others compared to the whites that the others are like slicks, icy skin and hair back. Hello, I'm here with my blue spear. Uh, it's such a different moment. Like it's very mm-hmm. chilling, very slow. The whites are just like a nightmare. These are just a nightmare, but the others are a trip, a whole entire trip. And Sam doesn't know he's meeting that other yet or what the others will look like because they're just in legend. Like, they are not a normal thing. White's normal. When the others come, that's real time, baby. We're in trouble. They are They are big trouble. It's true. <laughs> I, I'd be like, oh my god, I'm intimidated. Like, they're just beyond me. And I, I'm pretty sure that's how everyone felt in that moment, too. There's these... Moments uh, that really show us, again, everyone's fear of, like, voices shrieking. There's a giant and a bear, a bear. Like, literally, it says a bear, a bear. I'm like, oh, yes, of course. The horses also are also <laughs> shrieking. They're shouting. Sam writes even faster, note after note, uh, surrounded by this soundtrack of steel. So some of those uh, potential notes that could have been sent out were, we've won, we're winning, we're holding our own, we're cutting our way free and retreating for the wall, we're trapped on the fist, hard pressed. One of the Shadow Tower men came staggering out of the darkness to fall at Sam's feet. 
He crawled within a foot of the fire before he died. Lost, Sam wrote. The battle's lost. We're all lost. So, Sam wishes he could think of something else in the present. He's lying on the ground, and he think he he'd rather think about his sister, Tala, his mother, or Gilly from Craster's Keep. I think it's interesting that Sam thinks of the women and girls in his life when he's seeking like these happy memories, right, to block out the fight at the fist, uh, or also even like you know, as you pointed out earlier, Yoke Boy, like that he thinks of his friends slash brothers as a sort of way to keep going, to not give up and just die. Yeah, now he's thinking about Gilly. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, already. A good woman will do that to you, Sam. A good woman will do that to yeah. you. Yeah. I, uh, I, I will say that it does, especially after you mentioned the unreliable narrator aspect earlier, Eliana, uh, I will say it, it makes me think of Sansa a lot here, of her at the Blackwater, just at the end of Clash, praying for everybody, right? And thinking mm. of everyone in that moment that, like, hard-pressed moment of like oh shit is real shit is going down here he thinks of that too of like the things that really truly matter to him there's another i don't know if it's here i think it's around here line where he's thinking of like how he doesn't want to remember the battle now and he kind of questions like why must he remember right and we see as he's writing down all these letters i i kind of feel maybe this is something that I don't want it to be, like, the way that it was in the show, though. But, like, obviously it's important for Sam to remember. Someone has to remember these people and what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's the historian of Ice and Fire. Yeah, he's writing a book. Makes Sam a very valuable character as a, as a witness to all of this, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. First-hand accounts are important. Yeah. Well, Gren shakes him to reality, telling Sam that he has to keep moving and that he'll die if he does not. And he tries to convince Gren otherwise. He's like, I'm just going to rest, then I'll be fine. And Gren's like, no, you won't. And Gren, with his frozen beard and gruff voice, is not having it. Sam remembers the night before they left the wall. Gren was stocky and strong, and he was being teased by Pip, who said that Gren would be great on the raging because he's too stupid to be terrified. And then Gren, like, countering that, realizes what happens, face turns red, and it's just, a, it's just great because... <laughs> Pip and Gren are in love, and no one can tell me otherwise. <laughs> it's very That's... cute. It's cute to have them as the echo to John and Sam, you know? Yeah, but Sam and John, as far as I can tell, they're not in love the way Pip and Gren are. <laughs> no. That's my, no. one Different. of my really big ships. <laughs> not not sleeping in the same bedroll. No, Eliana, I'm sorry. Mm, no, but they do. Oh my think. god. Pip and Gren. Log off AO3, Aliana. God, get it. It's Keep legitimately the, the first, here. the first, like, I, and I don't know if, like, this is, like, embarrassing to admit that I haven't read that much of Song of Ice and Fire fanfic, only a little bit, but the first ones that I ever saw were Pip and Gren. <laughs> Very formative experiences. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, nope, I agree. They are in love, Aliana. I agree. And that, that's all. <laughs> Alistair Thorne is less in love with Pip and Gren. He calls he calls Gren Orax a slightly nicer name than Sir Piggy and Lord Snow, right? Slightly nicer. On a scale of one to ten, I'd say it's like a three. The bar is low. Niceness. Yeah. He just rolled over it. Just rolled over that bar. Gren had always been nice to Sam, but Sam thinks that's because of John. He literally thinks if it weren't for John, none of them would have liked me. It's so hard because, like, he goes and flips between it throughout the entire chapter of his status of friendship. And you can see that 
he equates others' love to being currency because of the way Randall Tarly brought him up in that, right? Like, because John told them to, it's not a true exchange of friendship. You know, he doesn't see that as an authentic friendship because it's just because Lord John said they should be nice to me. And some of the things John experienced while being, you know, a Lord's bastard does not suit one at the wall. Being kin to what Sam would have seen his father exact against people, right? Because, like, Randall doesn't really have friends in his rulership life, it seems. Not real friends. And I don't know, it's interesting to see the way that Randall would have brought or not brought friendship into Sam's life and how Sam would treat it because like Randall sees people as currency yeah so Sam has this suspicion of friendship doesn't he and he he can't concede Mm. that people might actually like him and see value in him his self-esteem is just so goddamn low he's always seeing life through you know, quite a depressing lens. He's choosing to believe here that Gren doesn't like him really, you know. It's this sort of paranoid social thought he has. This is an aspect of himself that he can improve, I believe, some somewhere down the line. As I think one of his main sort of internal goals is to accept himself, which we did brush upon earlier. And I think if he accepts himself, it's a bit of a cliche, but then he will allow himself to accept love from other people. Um, back to Randall, I think fathers are just such important figures to the self-concept of young men. And so we reach an age that we can come to question our own fathers. We, we just sometimes straight up believe what they tell us. This becomes very difficult when your dad is in British terms a knobhead like randall charlie (laughs) yes randall charlie is as you said a knobhead he is not to use another british term that i've learned from love island he's not a lad no he's not one of the lads like (laughs) sam and his his friends and yeah this this lads trip is fucking terrible right now um but yeah, I that's a, that's such a, an interesting contrast of like you know how Sam has gotten to this self conception because of Randall Charlie. That's I, I think that's interesting what you said, Chloe. That Randall has no friends because we see other lords have friends, right? Like Ned had friends, Robert had friends. They were each other's friends, right? Even even Ty- Tywin has got Kevin, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Tywin has friends, and I mean Pycelle clearly felt like he was friends with Tywin, but who wants to be friends with Randall? <laughs> Ew. <laughs> yeah. No Not way. even Randall. He doesn't seem to value friendship yeah. for any other reason, right? Like, the friends in the Reach might be him, but it's not really friends. People call mm. him when they want to kill people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's really good yeah. at killing people dead. Call Randall. He's an asshole. He can clean up some crime for us. I have never seen him kill someone. I think he might have made that up also, to be honest. <laughs> he's Those Reach I, I, know, I know we'll probably see it in a it eventually yeah it sounds like a breach um but in regards to like sam learning to value himself and like friends like and how he doesn't believe that gren could really like him i mean obviously he does and it's not just gren right like a lot of people have told sam to just to get up already and i feel like if you didn't care about someone staying alive you wouldn't have been like dude you need to get up 
Like, Gren is literally risking his life and safety to try and get you to stand up right now without John around. So clearly it's not just completely hinging on John. And, and there is the fact as we go forward, like, they think John's dead. Mm-hmm. Because they Not haven't yet. heard from him in ages. Soon. But they're, yeah, soon. <laughs> soon. But, like, they pretty much are like, Dunno, John's probably dead. Haven't heard from that fucker in a while. So, John really doesn't matter in this, Sam. This is all you got. They're your friends now. They're your brothers now. Yeah. Yeah. John was lost with Cor in Halfhand. Probably dead. And Sam would cry, but his tears would only freeze like him. A tall brother with a torch stops besides them and says, You need to leave, Sam. If he can't walk, he's done. Gren needs to save his strength. Gren says, He just needs a hand, and he begins to pull Sam to his feet the best he can. The moment Gren lets go, Sam falls right backward into the snow. He kicks Sam up, telling him he has to get up, and Sam curls up, protecting himself from the kicks. Oh and then he thinks the most relatable line in the entire song of any ice nor fire. I thought Gren was my friend. You shouldn't kick your friends. Why don't they let me be? I just need to rest, that's all, and sleep some, and maybe die a little. So relatable. Dude. So relatable. It is like, I've never related to a sentence more in my life. This is coming from the woman with six alarms set in the morning, you know? Yeah. No, I legitimately believe this is, like, one of the most relatable lines. I was, like, out here yesterday talking about how I relate to Gollum, um, just giving up at the smallest hardship, and that's how I, I, I relate to this, and I honestly, I continue to be surprised that there are people who dislike Sam, and who dislike his POV, and I, I think maybe it's just, like, this. it's too real, in my opinion, and, like, controversial take i just low-key think that the people who dislike sam it's because they're dishonest with themselves about who they are and like this is just relatable content it is relatable i i use the phrase every nerd with sam sometimes yeah yeah uh, so the other voice told grant to leave him that voice comes back in and helps to carry sam it's Small Paul, who once carried a calf that was heavier than Sam. Sam is just muttering in Paul's hands, telling him to put him down, just let him die. Yeah, Sam is almost ready to give up on himself. It's like a suicidal wish. Just let me rest here and, you know, forget about me. I'll die. I'll, I'll be on this blanket of snow, nice and warm. And he's tempted by that. But Fortunately, his friends don't let him, his brothers. And it brings to mind this quote from Tyrion in Game that I really like. He says, death is so terribly final while life is full of possibilities. So Sam just needs to get through it. Little does he know that if he overcomes these gigantic obstacles, the author might just throw a few rewards his way. Whoa, one of them being a girlfriend, Sam. So I, I see real life in much the same way. If you're in really tough times, everything is really difficult. Sometimes you just have to buckle in and hang on because no matter how damaged you feel you are, wonderful things can happen to anyone in this world, believe it or not. I love that. I love that. Thank you. And something else I see in this too, you, you, you kind of touched on it. His friends don't let him just succumb because I think something else that this chapter shows is like, it's okay to get help sometimes when you're in your really dark moments. And, you know, Sam is just so down on himself and 
struggles to go on, but thanks to his friends, Small Paul and Gren, he is eventually able to keep going. Because I think getting help, it's not a weakness, but because Sam has just been told all of his life that he's a burden, he's afraid to ask for help from his friends. I'm relating hard to this. There's so many aspects. The the closer I look at the Sam, the more things I'm like, whoa, yeah, that is a bit like me sometimes. Well, and it's so hard because, like, when you've been told your whole life that you are nothing but a burden on others, right? Like, of course you want to just curl up in a ball and die in the snow and tell them to please just go on because you feel like you're that much of a burden. And sometimes everybody just needs a hand, a help. Like Mira Reed mm-hmm. says in the show that the books were based on, whatever that line I like that she says that I say all the time on this podcast, oh my God. you guys know. You heard it a couple weeks ago. You hear it like once a POV. She says it. That just because whatever, someone need help doesn't mean they're not worth helping. I don't know. Whatever. Pile. Good of bad. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And And it's again, like, every single time Sam is like, my friends hate me. They're not my real friends. George disproves that in the text, right? Yeah. Because Gren then tells him, save your strength, Sam. Think about your sisters, your brother, Maester Aenon, your favorite foods, songs, but do that in your head, please, <laughs> he asks. <laughs> I, I like that one. That made me smile. Very Gren. Um, it's so sweet because like, they they know him. These are the things yeah. that Sam actually cares about. If they didn't like you, Sam, they wouldn't be out here saying, well, think about your sisters, they don't give a fuck about how many sisters someone they don't like has out on the wall. You Very know? true. Nobody no. has that kind of capacity for someone they don't like. Yeah. And if they do, it's thinning every day. Mm-hmm. So not saying this at anyone in particular. Eliana. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and here I was thinking, damn, everyone needs themselves a friend like Chloe to eat raw garlic with. But shit, guess not. <laughs> fuck. I'm a burden. Uh... I'm just kidding. I'd pick you out of the snow any day, babe. I'd probably drop your ass, though. You yeah, know I'm a weak like, bitch. I'm a weak motherfucker. Is she able to do that? <laughs> like, ten minutes ago, I was just telling Yoke Boy I pulled a muscle, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I pulled a muscle podcasting, so... <laughs> Gren just wants that garlic sausage. He's just sort of uh, playing sound yeah, for the sausage. <laughs> There truly is a great theme of brotherhood in this chapter going on. And I love that coming off of the chapter located right before this uh, Arya chapter, that insight from Sam into family for the first time from him and Arya with the brotherhood in the last chapter, we know that Sam's assimilation into the watch wasn't easy at first. And, this whole brotherhood theme becomes so significant between that chosen family versus the family that rejected you and society that rejected you, as well as this idea of men coming together from different religious backgrounds and choosing to follow one thing together. Mm. So with the brotherhood, they're all following R'hllor, but not just R'hllor, they follow it because they believe it because they've seen it work, right? And bring back the dead and you even have between Arya and Harwin, where he's telling her, these are my brothers now. You know, uh, Lord Eddard's dead. These are my brothers. I belong to the Lightning Lord. Uh, we mean your brother no ill, but it's not him we fight for. He has his own army. The small folk only have us. Do you understand what that means, Arya? And that's what Sam is learning, right? Like, out here in the ice zombies, when you're north of the wall your religion becomes 
the undead out here, right? Like, you believe in what's real. The heart trees aren't going to do anything but soak up your blood beyond the wall, right? Maybe Bran can send, like, some vision ravens to come save your ass or something. Or cold hands can show you a secret passage. But, uh, you know, out here, you have the cold and each other. And that's it. Yeah, Sam has got the sort of social equivalent to imposter syndrome. He just doesn't doesn't think he's can possibly be good enough for other people. He thinks that, you know, it's some sort of mistake that people are making when they judge him. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because as you say, you know, in this environment, who's going to stop to pander to Sam if they really didn't like him? Yeah. Yeah. I love that he finds his place there eventually. Thankfully, Chet's plan did not... I don't know, because I'm like, I'm glad Chet's plan did not go through, but then a lot of more people died, I guess, because of what actually did happen. And I I think it's interesting when you're saying that there are no gods beyond the wall, just the whites and the others, and that becomes the religion, because that's what the power and the magic that's there, because this does intersect with Sam's storyline later on, and we'll obviously talk about it more later on, the stuff at Craster's Keep, and they talk about how Craster kind of serves these cruel, cold gods. They talk about the others as like those gods, as uh, you know, he sacrifices that. Speaking of like dysfunctional families with <laughs> no brothers at all, Craster's family. What a nightmare! <laughs> family reunions suck. <laughs> <sighs> well. Sam says he doesn't know songs anymore, but Gren reminds him of the bear and the maiden fair, and Sam is re- then instead reminded of the bear that came up the fist with hairless, rotted flesh and bags for no songs at all. <laughs> Ever again. Yeah, this, I think, is the same bear that Chet was trying to hunt down in oh. the opening section of his prologue because he's with his dogs and he's trying to track this bear. And we have his POV, obviously, but the dogs won't take the scent so he can't find the bear to you know to butcher and eat so it's this this sort of minor mystery but you don't even re- really realize that it is a mystery on your first read through because it's quite subtle but I, I think that the answer to the mystery is that chet's hounds can't take the scent because the bear has been whited in the haunted forest and it mm-hmm. you know it's poised to attack so i do love how these thing george threads these things through the story like this and uh, yeah a normal bear would be terrifying but an undead bear yeah we talked we talked earlier about the layers of trauma in sam's head and this is a whole new layer yeah and i love how it's from the past i mean i always love how george folds in different times of events happening into one pov chapter and takes you back and says, let me tell you what happened three days ago while Sansa was stuck in her tower. But it's expertly done in this, especially with all the horror vibes we've been talking about. And there's something interesting in that both his bear, Sam's bear, is from the past, right? We're getting Sam recollecting this bear in the present day and when he saw this undead bear. And it's not unlike Brienne's bear, right? Because we don't get Brienne's bear through her pov originally we only get recollections from her and we see it through jamie's pov so i'm loving all of the storm bears it's uh 
almost unbearable. Oh. The song. You're unbearable. Nice. <laughs> I don't encourage her behavior. Uh... <laughs> Thank you, young boy. Anytime. Glad to have you here. <laughs> um, Friends look after each other. Exactly, exactly. You Leave me here to die now. in the snow. <laughs> snow, Ned. <laughs> snow. Um Yeah, I mean like there's there's such an interesting yeah, tie in between like Brienne's bear and Sam and like the timing of when those show up in this book. I mean Brienne's bear is covered in hair, like in the song. Sam's is like a lewd naked bear, but as you said, like it is a layer of trauma for Sam. The bear ends up also being a layer of trauma for Brienne at some point too, because why wouldn't it be? I also kind of wonder, like, is the bear I, I first of all, I love that you've pointed out, like I didn't realize that or catch that that the bear that they were tracking is the same bear. Um It's a good thing I guess they didn't track it, it tracked them. That's actually less good. But is the undead bear or the dead bear in general foreshadowing for the death of Jair? I don't know. Random, yes. random ass thought I had. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think so. I think that's a great call out. <sighs> Bears. Okay, I also am wondering, because like, if they're trying to find the bear to eat the meat, something I wonder is, can you eat undead? No, Eliana. <laughs> You can't eat your undead meat if I you guess don't it, eat your pudding first. Yeah, it's also rotten, is what we find out. It is rotten flesh. And no one yeah. wants to eat that. All right, so I'm glad I've... What do you think Sam's sausage is made out of? Um, But that's fresh. Maybe if you get to the undead, maybe if the undead is brought back soon enough before it rots, you can eat them. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's a gray area. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe's face is just like, why is this happening to me? I'm just the Virgo rising in me is like this is so improper that you're speaking of this right now while we have guests over. Uh Gren tells Sam to think about the birds. Think about your ravens, Sam. And Sam's like, they're not mine. They're the Lord Commanders. They're Castle Blacks, the Night's Watches. Oh, Sam. He has no ownership over anything or like feeling of wanting it because his dad probably told him. That everything he had in life was not his and never was to be his. And that he's worthless and had nothing and would never have anything of his own because of that. So um, just so funny to think about. Like, that's why Sam is like, they're not mine. And it's like, they're basically yours, Sam. Yeah, kind of. I also think it's kind of funny that, like, Grant suggests this as a happy, like, thought because... I don't know, he's just, like, kind of assuming Sam has this really close kinship with, like, the ravens. And I don't know that Sam, like, feels that close to the birds or the ravens. Apparently, like, that's small Paul. Sam's just kind of like, I don't know, yeah, the ravens are there. Um, And now they signify failure to him. Things are going great. (laughs) Yeah, small Paul suddenly is, like, frowning, and he's like, well, Chet said that I could have more months talking raven, but he forgot. He asks Sam if he could have one of his ravens, but Sam's like, no, dude, they already left. They're flying. They're gone. Yeah, just as we convince you guys that Sam's friends really do love him for who he is, Small Paul starts (laughs) carrying him, probably because he wants that bird. (sighs) Yeah, and Small Paul has, like, some flavors of Lenny, you know, put down the rabbit, Small Paul, obviously, just because of his size and the way he speaks, And 
this is, again, another one of those little hints of the mutiny, right, cropping up that Sam and them, they're obviously running for their lives and they don't think about it. But they're like, what do you mean, Chet promised you a rent? What? Why would he promise you? What? And for us, if you think about it, you're like, oh, shit, right? Because shit was supposed to go down until these zombies attacked. Uh, I I feel really bad for Small Paul because I do think he's like, being a little pushed and taken advantage of by the boys who want to start the big bad mutiny, right? And he's like, I'm just in it for the bird, man. I'll do whatever you want if I can have a bird because I'm lonely. Someone should just give him a bird and he shouldn't have to mutiny, you know? I mean, there are worse reasons to join a mutiny. I think a bird is one of the more admirable ones. And interesting. <laughs> if they had made it back to the wall, I don't see why Sam couldn't give him one of the birds because it, the they would just meet the birds there. Eliana, and where do you draw the line? Is my question for mutiny. Um, mm-hmm. I I feel like Chet had a bad idea. Like Chet's ideas, he's like, yeah, I'm gonna mutiny, and then I think I'm gonna try to live like Craster. That's not a good reason to mutiny. A bird, yeah. a bird is a good. Reason. I, I'm I'm with the bird. I like the bird. <laughs> Chaotic neutral. I respect this Mor- for you. Mormon's too. got a raven, so, you know, there's precedent. Yeah. Yeah, there is precedent. It is there pretty is. cool. Well, yeah, unfortunately, again, Sam had released all the ravens when the battle felt close to lost. The horn sounding with two short blasts and the long one to mount up and go. And also, unfortunately, um, <laughs> in the hubbub, he did not attach any of the messages that he had written. Oops, big mood. This is me sending an email and being like, attaches, blah, 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 and not putting the attachment. Yeah, yeah. In that moment, he was like, be free, be free, hurry, get our messages there. And the birds are like, okay, bye. And I'm like, wait, what? Never mind. We'll ask you later. We'll get you later, Sam. I just think anyone who's forgotten to attach something to an email has like no right to judge (laughs) Sam. No. None. This is like way more. Stressful. Also, the anxiety of realizing that you've sent the wrong thing or the wrong email is highly relatable. Yes. yes yeah. Also true. Also true. So much harder. Yeah. I do that at work sometimes. I send the wrong attachment to the wrong person, and they're like, "Oh, you're getting this from so and so. Interesting." You know, giving out the personal info. It's not good. <laughs> oh, damn. Well, hopefully, I, just, I give them nothing. <laughs> Yes, Queen, give them nothing. I hope, you know, I hope that these messages don't just blow into the wrong hands. You know, you get a a really smart other walking down the road, picks them up. Interesting. Night's Watch nearby. (laughs) That's how the other gets to the end of the chapter. He found the messages. (sighs) Sam is stumbling through the snow and remembers the dead coming over the stones, arrows through them. Some ring, some in ring mail, some naked. Many of these whites were free folk. Some were also in faded blacks. He remembered one of the Shadow Tower men shoving his spear through a white's pale soft belly and out his back, and how the thing staggered right up the shaft and reached out his black hands and twisted the brother's head around until blood came out of his mouth. That was when his bladder let go for the first time. He was almost sure. Yeah. That's interesting. In Chet's prologue, Chet tells Sam that when the wildlings approach, they'll come right at you screaming in your face. And I'll, I bet you'll piss those breeches. So he's really sort of poking fun at Sam, saying he's going to wet himself. But when the others attack the fist, 
it's Chet who first wets himself. We know this because it's literally how his POV chapter ends. And later Sam does the same thing. But clearly he held on a bit longer, so he wins. No, really, I think that George is showing that anyone can be overcome by fear and Chet is not quite the hard guy that he thinks he is. And Sam is certainly not alone in his quite natural reaction to this unmitigated zombie terror. Although, no doubt, he gives himself a really hard time for it. Like you said, right, everyone... Anyone can be overcome by fear, and I like legitimately believe that every single person of the Night's Watch there on the fist wet themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty scary. Especially, yeah. like, if you've never seen an other or a white, which most of those men had not. Absolutely. And, again, we're back to the, the trauma of it all, because Sam is missing memories from some of this time, right? He doesn't remember running but he remembers suddenly arriving to the next camp. Uh, and this camp is struggling hard in the battle. Everything's dark, but flame is engulfing beings around him. Whites, bears. Finally, Sam finds a horse. He mounts it and he heads toward the sound of the horn. At the sound of the horn, he finds Ed, who sits atop a horse. Thorin Smallwood is ready to call out the reserves, but Mormont's like, no, no, we have to cut our way out. He calls them into a spearhead formation, but Smallwood shouts out, the slope is crawling with others. Jor begins to shout a new command, but the horse throws him as the white bear comes staggering back. Sam pisses himself again. The bear was dead, pale, rotting, its fur and skin all sloughed off, and half its right arm burned to the bone, yet still it came on. Only its eyes lived, bright blue. Just as John said, they shone like frozen stars. I just want to see the naked rotten bear. (laughs) Smallwood charges, almost taking the bear's head off, but then instead loses his own head to the bear. Um, Literally, his head was like probably ripped off. The Lord Commander tells them to ride, and they gallop to the stone wall. Sam had never jumped a horse before, but, you know, first time for everything. The horse takes over, gets him through. The rider to his right is not so lucky. Whites swarm him and his horse. They all plunge down the hills, men and horse swept into a tumble, axes and swords hacking at flesh, and Sam clutches his horse harder than ever, sobbing. The whites hold on for dear life, too, clutching, or not dear life, but you know, whatever this is, clutching at swords and horse legs as they pass, even clawing open the belly of a horse, hurtful, as it passes overhead. Sam feels relieved until a man in black leaps from the brush and pulls him from his saddle and then gallops off on his horse. Dick move. Yeah. The fuck? (laughs) Yeah. I would really like to know who that was. (laughs) I hope it was one of the mutineers who end up, you know, not not with the best ending. <laughs> I've yeah. read like people speculate it could be it could have been Chet, which he he could have noticed maybe, but also again trauma and things were moving fast and it was pitch black besides the fire here and there. Uh, and I guess it doesn't matter, but it would make sense if it was Chet. We should ask George. That should go on yes, our questions. For that's George the Lewis. number one question. Who was it who pulled pulled Sam off the horse? Throw it yeah. on the list. <laughs> we need to. I need to start writing all these down. Um, I have some written down. 
And I also want to, like, call out that there's, like, this brief mention that there's this one dog that was, like, you know, doing a great job bounding in and out of, like, the horse's legs and trying so hard to keep up with the fleeing brothers and their horses, but then eventually, like, gets lost because it can't keep up. And that just makes me real sad. Yeah, we can blame Chet for that as well, because he's the dog guy. Actually, though, yeah. God damn it, Chet. Getting sick of Chet's bullshit. Yeah. Blame Chet. <laughs> Not for long, don't worry. Um... <laughs> uh, Sam tries to run after the horse, but he falls on a root and falls hard on his face, weeping, until Ed finds him. That was his last coherent memory of the Fist of the First Men. Later, miles from the Fist, Sam and the other survivors shiver, some mounted, some foot. Dywin had lost, I think, two out of five, three out of five of the pack horses that carry resources, and... They take time, they redistribute the loads, so losing revisions doesn't, like, ruin their lives. Next time, next time they lose a horse. Healthy men are demoted to walking, the wounded are promoted to horse, and torches are set to guard the front and the back. All I need to do is walk, Sam tells himself, but within an hour he begins to struggle, and that is where we meet him in his chapter. The present. The real present. Yeah, I I really love how these apocalyptic scenes of the Fist of the First Men are intricately weaved into the chapter in these flashbacks. I don't know about you two, but when I read this chapter sort of casually, I struggle to know where I am in the timeline sometimes and to knit together in my head where I abouts I am, and I need to sort of keep my eye on it and study it to make proper sense of it. But, you know, perhaps that chapter format has had the desired effects. Perhaps that is what George was going for to convey the spinning mind of Samwell and this disorienting blur of action. I, I absolutely agree. And I, that's one of the reasons why like this is, you know, my favorite chapter, as you said, right? Like it's it, it really thrusts readers into that same like state of temporal confusion because Sam keeps being like, I don't know how many days ago that was. Three days, four days? He's, like, lost track of it, and, you know, like, even more confusing is, to some extent, it's written sort of stream of conscious, like, not entirely, but to an extent, because you pointed out, right, like, the times that we go into some of those flashbacks are, flashbacks are those, like, intrusive moments, as you said, that suddenly, like, pop into Sam's mind, and then he pops back there, he's put back in the middle of the chaos and then comes back to the present. And we have several different moments of temporality in this chapter. Not only do we have the present, we also have that past in that singular moment of the attack on the fist. And then we also jump every now and then even further into the past, into like this large amorphous like duration of time of Sam's life before the watch and his childhood and like bounding between all of that. It really gives you, again, that same sense of how Sam feels like he doesn't know when it is. It would feel overwhelming if it wasn't done right. And that's mm-hmm. a testament to how it's written. Yeah, agree. Absolutely. It's a lot of back and forth. And the confusion isn't overly confusing. It's enough to disorient you, the reader, to put you in the exact same tone of the chapter, which I think is also really well crafted. Yeah. The sobbing Sam took another step, like, operates in that way also of being another tool to bring you back into the present and to give a rhythm and sense of time um, as the chapter moves forward because of the, I think, intended confusion. 
Yeah, it's another, you know, the the thrum of the crossbow uh, and mm. Moon Boy for all I know. Uh, the ringing yeah. of the bells for John Con. It's another one of those that grounds the chapter, and every time it goes off, it brings you back to the start. You're you're back to the ground. I like that. The snow is growing deeper, the ground more treacherous, and even Paul's strides start to grow shorter uh, as he carries Sam. He gets tired. The men on horse pass them, staring after Sam, and some of the torchbearers pass, too, saying, You're falling behind. No one's going to wait for you, Paul. You should leave that pig for the dead men. But Paul says Sam promised him a bird. He didn't at all. And the torchmen call him a fool, leaving. They're not wrong. A while after that, Gren stops suddenly. They're alone. That was the rear guard. Paul's arms tremble, and he puts Sam down. He can't keep carrying him. The torches are all gone. Only Gren's torch remains, and it's close to burning out. I love the language there. It's actually phrased as close to burning out, and it reminds me of Jamie's fever dream when his torch goes out. I think the language is very similar intentionally to... Who knows if it's foreshadow or what, but it's very uh, fighting the others. And when the others arrive and you have no light left. But there's no Jamie or Brienne, unfortunately, here. There's no one. They're alone. They have no food, no fire, no warmth. But wait, they're not alone. Someone's there, an other, on a very creepy horse. Hoarfrost covered it like a sheen of frozen sweat and a nest of stiff black entrails dragged from its open belly. (laughs) Oh boy. We were talking about it being a horror story, and we're heading towards the climax. And yeah, there's theories that the others are, you know, going for the horn that we saw John give Mm. to Sam. So that is one theory. It could just be sort of bad being in the wrong place at the wrong time for Sam, or it could be that these others are sort of sniffing for this horn. Interesting. I I like that. This happened more than once, I guess, and mm-hmm. the horn, I that horn has to be significant. Like, I, there, I strongly believe that horn is important. Yeah, and there is something action movie and horror movie like in that, like, the killer keeps finding you. You know, and that you have to keep escaping and that you're on the run. It does give kind of a sense of, like, Sam being on the run and that horn being a magical tracking device beeping away in your pocket, a radar for them to discover. I find that very interesting. I could see that being used. Yeah, that that reminds me of No Country for Old Men. They've got a literal beeping tracker device in there yeah that's quite i was just uh, we just rewatched that this week so i think that's actually like subliminally where i'm coming from right now (laughs) that's really funny (laughs) yeah so back to the other sam whimpers and the other slides toward them paul asks the other why'd you kill that horse this is eliana uh why'd you kill that horse that's one of our brother's horses and gren flashes fire toward the other the other moves towards Gren, quick slashing, and the ice blue blade brushes the flame, making an awful, terrible screech. I, as you said, right, I just love that Small Paul, he loves birds. I feel like Small Paul would get along with our friend Cassidy. Small Paul is worried about the horse. You know, he's just like, why did they have to be so mean to the horse? And he even remembers whose horse it was. Like, he remembers exactly. It's amazing. Um, 
we I talked a little bit about the uh, Game of Thrones prologue earlier. Um, and something that I think is interesting that people have pointed out is that the others do kind of seem to be playing with Waymar Roy's, right? Like, he's just so below them that they're like, this, this doesn't mean anything. And when they find him... And I kind of feel like that might be what the other is doing here, too. Right? Like, who fucking cares about these humans and their stupid torch? They don't bother to kill Gren at this moment. Because, it, again, it's like that predator playing, like... He just flexes on him and is like, oh, you think some fire is going to scare me? And just cuts it off and is like, who do you think I am? Yeah, it's very much like Freddy coming towards you to end your fucking day. You know, it's totally villain stuff. It's very much scary movie villain shit happening here. I love that. It's very like the danger. Not only are they beautiful, but they're dangerous. And they have some sort of... Some sort of, like, ability to think where the whites are not. They are thoughtless. They are just a mess, honestly, honey. They are messy. Let's be real. Those whites the are whites, messy. yes. Yeah, they are just stumbling yeah. ass over apple I mean, the cart others over walls. Yeah, the others are gorgeous. They have entrance music. When that other got off his horse, you know a song was playing. I don't know what it is, but there was entrance music going on. <laughs> the song of Achilles. Oh my god. <laughs> well... The head of the torch tumbles sideways, and now Gren has a glorified stick, which he then promptly throws at the other, running off. I I respect that. (laughs) I respect the last-ditch effort of, like, fuck this. Uh, Small Paul charges in with his axe next. We have this line. The fear that filled Sam then was worse than any fear he had ever felt before, and Samuel Tarly knew every kind of fear. Mother, have mercy, he wept, forgetting the old gods in his terror. Father, protect me. Oh, oh. His fingers found his dagger, and he filled his hand with that. Thank you, Yoke Boy. We love you so much. I'm going to make you do all of them now. (laughs) (laughs) I do love this entrance of the other, especially compared to the end of Sam 3, that we'll get to in a few Mm. weeks, right? Because when he shows up on his elk they expect it to be an other since they've been running from whites and others this whole time but then it's cold hands question mark this is classic horror and i love that george immediately as we get closer the story goes but that's not what this is about anymore for sam he's on a bigger journey now yeah and they eat the elk speaking of eating oh that's true is that why you asked the question earlier eliana about the the okay the elk's not undead. No, but the other ripples its body away from Paul's axe, and it twists its sword through Paul's flesh. Sam heard Paul say, Oh, as he lost the axe. Impaled, his blood smoking around the sword, the big man tried to reach his killer with his hands, and almost had before he fell. So, may the mother have mercy on Small Paul's soul. Because, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Small Paul is among, like, the many people who are theorized to maybe be, like, a descendant of Duncan the Tall. Uh, Gren is also included there. Obviously, Brienne, um, though that one was confirmed, um, the Cleganes. But I just, I, I bring that up because I really admire Small Paul's courage here. And maybe, like, he doesn't think much about it, right? In the same way that he's like, I'm doing this for a bird. But regardless, like, 
I I just think he must be afraid, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, all of them are. He's afraid, but he's motivated by the killing of the horse. He's so pissed that the horse That's is dead. That's true. Wait, you're right. You're right. I, part of it might be vengeance for the horse. Part of it is also maybe protecting his brothers. And, and you know, it's a little bit like Sam's courage in a moment, but Small Paul does die here, as we know, but this feels like a no chance and no choice moment, right? Paul trying to protect his brothers. And I think we see that in like these sorts of no chance, no choice gambits. I mean, there is a cost to that choice. Brienne obviously paid a big cost. Small Paul paid a very big one also. So I respect Life. Him. He paid with his life is what Eliana is trying to say so delicately. So delicately. <sighs> well, Chloe, you have to do this part because there's I know. a lot in here for you. It's very important for Eliana's <laughs> happiness. Sam tells himself to do it now. And then he hears voices in his head. First, he hears his father, Alistair, Dickon, Rast, saying, Craven, Craven, Craven. He laughs hysterically, thinking about how he'll look as a big, fat, white, white. And then suddenly he hears John's voice in his head saying, Do it, Sam. But wait, John was dead. That's impossible. You're welcome, Eliana. Hope Thank you're you. happy. The return of the John more. voice. Yep, There will be, be more. Yeah, Sam's been mocked so much in his life. His head is just full of these negative voices that impede him and drive him down into the dirt. However, hearing John shows the value of just one single positive, supportive voice encouraging him. It's what he always needed. Another guy to slap him on the back and say, go on, you can do it. John's kindness and empathy really changed the direction of Sam's life. And taking nothing away from Sam... John's voice really helps to save his life here. And yeah, it makes me love love John and Sam all the more. Yeah, that's such a great point. It does save. Someone believing in you can save your life. I love that. And the sort of encouragement that John shows to Sam, I think we see it like start coming from others in the camp too, right? As we see in Chet's chapter, Sam is learning to use a bow and arrow and he's making progress with like some positive reinforcement from people who are not Chet. Yeah, he does well with people that don't do the negative reinforcement and the asshole shit, right? Like, he doesn't do well with Chat. He doesn't do well with Alistair and Rast. There's a reason these people are coming to his mind, saying on one side of his mind right now, you can't do it, Sam. Uh, and then you have John <laughs> on the other side. You can't do it, Sam. <laughs> he finds himself stumbling forward, closing his eyes, shoving out the dagger, and then he hears a crack. A screech, so shrill, so sharp, and he opens his eyes to see the other's armor running down its legs, pale blue blood hissing and steaming around the dagger in its throat. It tries to pull out the dagger, but its fingers begin to smoke on touch. I just think some of the language here around these sharp objects is very interesting. Like, in a moment... The dagger is going to be described as also smoking after all of the other body is gone and just a few moments before as small paul died the other sword right is described also as smoking with paul's blood as it's pulled out of him um, obviously this is probably steam which is a different chemical phenomenon than smoke but i i just find this really interesting in regards to like the obviously the azorahai and nisa nisa legends 
Yeah, that loops in with what you're saying of Small Paul's sacrifice for them, mm, right? In yeah. letting them kind of get away. He dies for their sins here. Yeah, during this like long night-ish thing. There's going to be a lot of horses up in heaven and a lot of birds, Small Paul. You can run and play I with them. I think so. Yeah. First, well, I mean, who knows what happens to his soul, right? <laughs> Doesn't he come back like yep. dead, big sad? Yep. Yeah, it's a bummer. Who knows? Who knows? A bummer for all. That's a different series. That's his dark materials. We don't got to worry about souls here. Sam watches the other shrink into a puddle and his bones of milk glass whirl away in a fine white mist, which coming back to that mist, like you said, that steam arising off the, the body of the other. It's kind of interesting. It stood out on this read, especially with the idea of like gray mist showing blood raven mm. usually in the text, as we've kind of found and talked about. Every time there's gray mist, it seems like it could be blood raven and Bran watching through a tree, uh, or they're involved at least. And this white, steamy condensate, maybe it's another type of magic, you know, a, a similar force, but a different brand of magic. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely magic. Something magical is definitely happening. <laughs> For sure. Gren touches the dagger, saying that it's cold. Which is interesting, because it's smoking. And Sam struggles to his feet, saying, Obsidian, dragonglass, then subsequently giggling, crying, and puking in the snow. All of these also are moods. Mood. Total mood. Gren pulled Sam to his feet. Checked small Paul for a pulse and closed his eyes, then snatched up the dagger again. This time, he was able to hold it. You keep it, Sam said. You're not craven like me. So craven you killed an other, Gren pointed with the knife. Look there, through the trees. Pink light. Dawn, Sam. Dawn. That must be east. If we head that way, we should catch Mormont. Well, when was the last time a human killed another that we know of. To my memory, I think the only one that we know of is the last hero that's said to have killed another, unless I'm forgetting something. But I don't think there's been one since the Age of Heroes, certainly. So what a boss Sam is. Although with the element of good fortune involved, you just know that he's going to downplay and even undermine himself at every opportunity immediately call him himself craven when he's puddled the shit out of another must be the most samuel tarley thing ever randall has truly done a number on this kid sam has got to realize that you can be a coward and brave at the same time like you said he's like downplaying himself and it's just sad because like Gren's like here like this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life <laughs> is probably how Gren feels right now and in regards to being both a coward and brave at the same time I feel like Sam should watch this show that aired a lot when I was younger it was also very scary very horror movie-ish so I think that he might find that interesting it was called Courage the Cowardly Dog and it was about a dog that that was very cowardly but did very brave things all the time. <laughs> That is Sam. Sam, that's, Courage the Cowardly Dog. Yep. That's Sam Tarly. Sam Tarly is courage. That's amazing. Thank you. Pack it up, Thank folks. You. We don't need to finish this episode. Eliana did We don't it. even need to finish this POV. 
Let's just uh, honestly, why finish the podcast? podcast? I think this is it. I think that yeah. that's our peak. We've peaked. We want We've to go out on a high note. Thank yep. you for being here for the last episode, Yoke Boy. Please let everyone know yeah. where they can find. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I also have a real thought, and um, I I mean, I love the way that this chapter ends. Right, like it feels kind of obvious, but I do want to call out, of course, that Dawn cresting at the end of the chapter. Because turns out this chapter has very much been sort of like what we can expect from the long night, likely, but in miniature. You know, after Small Paul and Sam's acts of bravery, also Gren being like, here's a torch and then throwing the stick. It shows that there's still hope. That's very much what the dawn at the end is. like. And if there's hope from people who do courageous things, even when they're afraid... Perhaps eventually the dawn will come. And I mean, there is still work to be done. Like, how they still know that they're going to need to head east if they're going to catch up with everyone else. But if you keep taking that next step, eventually morning's going to follow. I love that so much. That that rings through, especially with the following lines to end the chapter. Like, it's just all, it ends in such a hopeful place where they've been chased by zombies for, like, weeks. It ends hopeful and sam is so quick to reject that he has slayed an other you know that that means anything where we're sitting here like dude you killed an other that's insane sam but it is in his blood right savage sam tarley is one of the historical house tarley figures so sam you're a savage you're a straight savage he is and the end of the chapter it is of course again so hopeful it ends with sam saying If you say, Sam kicked his left foot against a tree to knock off all the snow, then the right. I'll try. Grimacing, he took a step. I'll try hard. And then another. So (laughs) I love that the chapter ends with Sam continuing to take small steps. I did mention that George uses this sobbing Sam took another step six times in in this chapter, well, the author went even further and chose to bookend the chapter with the same sentiment. And for me, it creates a nice sort of circular feeling to it, like I experience when I read some short stories. It might seem to Sam like all those steps are tiny and insignificant, but there's defiance, determination and perseverance in every small step whatever sam thinks of himself he is confronting adversity and achieving this simple goal of survival which of course is not such a simple goal in this setting yes absolutely yes to all of this that you said like as you as you stated right it is so much like a short story and like a very clear emotional arc that comes around um and the language you know coming back around and tying it all together and it kind of makes me think of the sentiment from stormlight archive that book was published after song of ice and fire the specific book i'm talking about which i'm not specifying in case it's spoilery but anyways it it, it kind of hits a similar note that this story is that this chapter is talking about like of course and the idea is like the most important step a person can take is the next one and that's especially true in hard times like obviously what sam is experiencing now and as you've said right that goal of survival which is very complicated in this moment and 
you know, I think that's a re- really relatable concept in general. And I just love that lesson, though. Hopefully we are all never caught in like a wintry zombie apocalypse. It's going to come for you first, um, Yoke Boy. <laughs> but it's a great example for how stories can be allegories for our own experiences. And then also like this action that Sam does at the end where he like kicks the snow off his boots. Right. It feels like he's like shutting like the burden of how he's felt from himself and also like maybe kicking off that fear a little. it's like an end and a beginning you know he's he's yeah. freshening up yeah yeah and ready to take those next steps again new year new sam tarley yeah. you know oh my god kind of uh, yeah it is he's fresh he's new he's peeled off that that chrysalis that he was trapped within and that chrysalis yeah. was snow and now he has shaken the snow. He's born anew, a phoenix in the snowy ashes. And snow I love Ned. that for him. Yes, and snow net. Uh, I love that. I like that sentiment from Stormlight Archive. That's really nice, Eliana. I'll read it someday, I promise. Someday. It's like really someday. long. and But I do think it's going to be finished one day, so there's that. Oh, don't tease me with a good time. Jesus. <laughs> she knows how to talk dirty to me right there, that girl. <laughs> Whew. Ooh, a finished Ooh. series. Uh, Ooh, finishing. Mm. So, <laughs> love what you both have said about finishing. I love what you both have said here, uh, just about like the emotional arc for Sam through all of this, and that beginning and end, and how this is like an end, but also a beginning. If you look at this as a pocket story in the universe, it does tell a story. Like, who Sam is, what he's doing, where he's going, why he's going there, and how he gets there, right? It gives you all the W's and it introduces characters that are tangential to him and kind of makes them, you know, it gives you kind of the understanding of why they're important to his plot. I, I like that a lot uh, as a mini story. And then George turns it on its head and keeps it going as a great POV that unravels more about Sam and shows Sam living to learn and love, right? And grow and learn to love that he's never been allowed to do as we'll go forward mm. with Gilly uh, and loss, right? Losing Maester Aemon later on and what an emotional time that is. And there's something in that kind of coming of age for Sam uh, that I find really interesting in Brienne's plot and in John's plot that comes back to the sword, right? For Brienne, it's the magical sword. We just went through this with Brienne that, you know, I have to have my magical sword and she doesn't unravel and use the magical sword until the last moment, until the the more end mm. of her feast plot. For John, Longclaw is a big emotional piece of turmoil, right? It's everything that his own dad never handed to him or never said to him the things that John wishes he could have known about his life, the things he doesn't know that he wishes he could have known. There's a lot in there. So Longclaw and the emotions with Jor having a failed son in his eyes, those are really, really in emotional beats. Too. Yeah, in my eyes as well. Uh, really emotional beats. And then Ice, of course, is so important for both Brienne and John as well as just the connection to Ned and Ice being split. But Sam, Sam and Heartsbane kind of rings really interesting to me here. Sam and Heartsbane and kind of the fact that Sam doesn't kill an other with a huge Valyrian steel sword. Sam does not do that. Sam kills the other with a tiny little arrowhead dagger flint piece of obsidian, right? Like a in your hand, bloop, 
stabby stab. It's not a huge two-handed great sword. It's not a, a boastful piece of a family legacy. He kills him with this piece of obsidian. And that's actually kind of braver, right? Like from a from a mm-hmm. tactics, I mean, he's not just lopping off the other's head from afar with this huge sword. He's up close and personal. He's a moment from death. And he's stabby stabby with the obsidian. And and there's something that like Randall would never let him have Heartsbane. He even says to him uh at one point, we got a memory You have given me no cause to disown you, but neither will I allow you to inherit land and title that should be Dickens. Heartsbane must go to a man strong enough to wield her, and you're not worthy to touch her hilt. That's so dark, because it's like, you've already done- he's already done more important things with a weapon than Mm -hmm. Randall's done. You know, by killing that one other, I think that's a much more important, purposeful use of a tool, of a sword, of a weapon- And it's not even a sword, not even Heartsbane. It it makes me think that he will have the opportunity to get Heartsbane back. Maybe pass it up. Maybe Danny brings Heartsbane to Sam, you know, after being like, Hey, sorry about your daddy. Here's his sword. Have an emotional grappling problem fest with that one, Sam. Enjoy that mental breakdown, Sam. I'm not sure what happens with Heartsbane. Because... But I, I do like what you said, that contrast between what Heartsbane is and the dagger, right? As you said, there's a lot of bravery that goes into using it. And like Sam, right? It seems at first people are like, oh, what is this for? What is this glass, this obsidian dagger for? Why do we have these? And it seems like an unassuming weapon, just like Sam, right? Mm-hmm. Unassuming, overlooked. Underestimated. Yeah. Very important. Yes, Secret just like Sam, our underdog, he is very important. Overall, it's been a really exciting start to Sam. I-, I think this has been such a strong chapter, and I'm excited to kind of watch Sam's isolated growth and see how Sam grows from the beginning of Storm through to Feast and the trials and tribulations he's going to go through out on the-, the road, the lonely road. And the seas. And the seas. Seizing the opportunities in front of him. Oh, Yeah, it's a fantastic story. And your listeners have got a lot to look forward to because there's so many good chapters in his POV. Today was a you know a really great chapter, but it's not the only one. It isn't the only one. I mean, obviously, again, I'm biased. It's like my favorite chapter. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like it's all, all downhill from here. It's not. There's a lot of good stuff. No, and it's all building. Yeah. It's all, It feels like it's building and, you know, Sam's progressing and you're seeing change before your eyes. You're seeing growth. Yeah. And you you and your listeners are going to, you know, pick up on that and follow in it. I think it's very satisfying. There's there's not many sort of growth stories. It's, you know, there's a lot of tragedy and stuff. But he, here we go. There's something nice and pure. He's definitely pure. Sam is kind of a, a very great pure character. With a lot of, like you mentioned, Yokoi, just really realistic and really close to home hitting kind of insecurities and flaws and feelings. And I think that's a great character. That's a well-written character. Absolutely. And, And I'm sure, you know, same for you. Like people, if you want to start looking at that growth in Sam's story right away, check out Radio Westeros's episode also out this month. Yeah, absolutely. And Yoke Boy, please let us know where are people able to find Radio Westeros across the internet and yourself? 
you can find Radio Westeros at any of the places that you find podcasts. We've been going for quite a while. You know, we're always welcoming to people coming to try us out, try out a new podcast if you haven't heard us already. And yeah, look forward to, to um, you know, trying to entertain you. Uh, yeah, the, the next episode we're doing is Sam. That was just pure coincidence, but it meant that I was very you know, sort of primed to do this episode. So good timing. And, you know, I I really enjoyed myself today. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the yoke boy. And it's yoke like egg yolk, not yolk, the other yolk. So there. (laughs) Not like the burdens (laughs) that we all must carry. Oh my God. And but more this, like delicious. <laughs> we'll have links below in the description, so please make sure to check them out. Thank you so much again for joining us today, Yoke Boy. We had such a blast with you, and we look forward to hopefully seeing you at Ice and FireCon this year, as long as life works out. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I've had a great time today, and I've really enjoyed your two perspectives on Sam because I've studied him so closely it's really nice to hear sort of new thoughts and yeah you give me plenty to sort of chew on so thank you and same to you I think you know I've been like considered some of like the perspectives you brought here in terms of like how Sam has like those intrusive thoughts or the way that the trauma has really like changed the way that his brain and thought processes work and I think you know I'm gonna go into the next few chapters now carrying that carrying that in mind Well, we will return with Sam 2 in A Storm of Swords uh, at the start of next month, at the start of February 2022. Next week, we will be out with his dark materials. So if you're following along for the Amber Spyglass, tune in for that episode. And if you want to keep up with those episodes, you can also find us on social media. Stay subscribed for our news. Uh, you can find us at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, over on Twitter. Or perhaps you have thoughts that you would like to share with us. You can shoot us a DM on Twitter. Or you can also shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, and make sure you're subscribed to us. We are pretty much on any podcast platforming stream you could get your hands on. Notably on Google Play iTunes, Spotify, where you can now leave reviews, so make sure to throw us five stars if you're on there. You can find us on any of those. iHeartRadio, Amazon, pick one. We're there. Pandora. Podbean, where we're hosted. Yep. And you can also always find us, of course, on Patreon. Patrons in the $5 tier and above get a bonus episode every month. This month we are visiting Norvos. Next month we are doing Cersei. Not that Cersei. And again, patrons in the Thunder tier and above get access to our Discord and once a month happy hour slash brunch. Yes, this month, January 30th from 1 to 3 p.m. Eliana time zone. Eliana time zone and hey again that's oh patreon.com slash girls gone canon as always i have been one of your hosts chloe and i have been another one of your hosts eliana and thank you again to our other other hosts this episode oh thank you sobbing we took another breath <laughs> sobbing I, I guess I'm not taking any other steps. I'm sitting oh on the God. ground. I'm I'm Sam lying down, being like, let me just rest and die. <laughs> That's me.
Uh, goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>